the true spirit of Christianity prevailed the natural consequence of the same form of religion liberty provided for by the institutions of the United States, and which might now exist throughout the Christian world, but for the baneful influences of Jesuitism. The Venetian ambassador, then in Germany, thus describes the peaceful condition of the German Christians. One party has accustomed itself to put up with the other so well, that, in any place where there happens to be a mixed population, little or no notice is taken as to whether a person is a Catholic or Protestant. Not only villages, but even families, are in this manner mixed up together, and there even exist houses where the children belong to one persuasion while the parents belong to the other, and where brothers adhere to opposite creeds. Catholics and Protestants, indeed, intermarry with each other, and no one takes any notice of the circumstance, or offers any opposition thereto. 1. The German author to whom we are indebted for the above extract says, in addition, even many princes of the Catholic Church in Germany went even a step further, and APJ oited men who were thorough Protestants to situations at their courts as counselors, judges, magistrates, or whatever other office it might be, without any opposition or objection being offered thereto. And these, he adds in a note, were not at all exceptional cases. 2. Notwithstanding Germany was enjoying this state of calm and repose, under the influence of that religious toleration which is the natural outgrowth of all the teachings of Christ, and has the full sanction of his example, it afforded neither pleasure nor satisfaction to the ecclesiastical supporters of the papacy at Rome. They saw in it the threatened destruction of the papal system, and the ruin of their ambitious hopes, unless, by some means, this spirit of religious toleration and liberalism could be entirely extirpated. They regarded Protestantism and the liberty which gave birth to it as heretical, as the worst and most flagrant violations of God's law. How to put an end to this liberty, and destroy all its fruits, was the practical question which agitated the mind of the Pope. He was willing enough to imitate the example of Innocent III in his treatment of the Albigenses, by beginning the work of persecution in Germany, and turning over the Protestants to the Inquisition, for that would have conformed to the canon law. But there were difficulties in the way not easily overcome. The Inquisition was not likely to carry on its murderous work as successfully in Germany as among the Latin races trained to obedience. The Germans were not so docile and submissive. And, besides, the influences of the Reformation, under the impulse given them by the courageous example of Luther, had reached some of the most powerful princes in Germany, who would have stood as a strong wall of protection against all such assaults. They were not willing to obey the pontifical command when it required that papal emissaries should be allowed at pleasure to burn their own subjects at the stake, and desolate their homes. Excommunication had nearly run its course. It had been so frequently employed to promote the personal ambition of popes, and for trifling and temporal purposes, that it was fast coming into disrepute. Its influence was so impaired that it had, in a large degree, lost its effectiveness. Protestant churches could not be closed by edicts of interdict. The attempt to release the German people from allegiance to their princes would have been as ineffectual as the command of King Canute when he ordered the waves of the ocean to retire. Any form of papal malediction and anathema would have been unavailing. Howsoever sick at heart the Pope may have been at this prospect so fatal to his ambition, he was not reduced to entire despair. He did not abandon the hope of bringing back the German princes to the old religion, 
and employing them as secular aids in such measures of coercion as should be found necessary to reduce the people into obedience. He found the old ecclesiastical weapons somewhat blunted, and looked around for others. Fortune seemed, at last, to smile upon the Pope when, casting his eyes around, they rested upon the Jesuits the freshly enlisted militia of the Church who, without any sense of either pride or shame, were trained to implicit obedience, without stopping to inquire whether the work required of them was good or bad, noble or ignoble. Called upon by the Pope, probably at the suggestion of Loyola himself, the Jesuits were as ready to obey as the latter was to command, even to the extent of conspiring against the peace of Germany, or any other country where barriers had been constructed to protect society against aggression. But the method of procedure was by no means clear. Courageous as Loyola was, he could not venture to send his small army into Germany with an open display of the instruments of persecution in their hands. They could not go as the open defenders of the papal dogmas, for they were unable to speak or understand the German language. If they had even been able to make known their opinions and purposes, they could not have withstood the intense indignation and fiery eloquence of the disciples of Luther and Calvin. The occasion, therefore, demanded of Loyola the exercise of his keen penetration of that wonderful sagacity which never deserted him, and which, at his death, he succeeded in imparting to his successor. The manner of procedure he finally adopted is suggestive of serious reflection, especially to the people of the United States. One History of the Jesuits By Greisinger Page 213 2 Ibid, pages 213, note If it be true that history repeats itself, and that nations, moving in fixed cycles, follow each other in their courses, the remembrance of the fact that many of them, once prosperous, had passed out of existence, admonishes us to inquire with exceeding caution into the relations which these same Jesuits have created between themselves and our institutions. They have not changed, but are still the infatuated and vindictive followers of Loyola, and it is well for us to know whether there are not evidences that, if permitted, they may repeat here what their society, at the command of its founder, attempted in Germany under the pretense that God had appointed them to conspire against any free and independent nation they could not otherwise subjugate. The people of the United States spend their time in the pursuit of a thousand objects, and in the investigation of a thousand questions, not the thousandth part as important to them as this. Military men have long been accustomed to reserve sappers and miners as helps in the emergencies of war. These always attack undercover, approaching by slow and stealthy degrees like the tiger or the cat. They do not take the chances of actual conflict, and never expose themselves to the leaden bale of battle. When the walls of a fortress cannot be battered down by direct assault, they secretly undermine them. And when the fuse is lighted, the magazine exploded, and the dead scattered in all directions, they return to their hiding places unarmed, to share in the rewards of victory. Loyola was a skillful and courageous soldier perfectly familiar with all the plans and strategies of war. In the organization of his society, he had availed himself of his knowledge both of the motives of men and of the movements of armies. Hence, when he submitted to the Pope his proposed methods of operation, he took the precaution to impress him with its importance and necessity, by declaring that, as its head, he should consider himself as the representative of Christ, the commander-in-chief of the heavenly hosts and is engaged in the war service of Christ.
with an army bound by solemn oaths to obey him implicitly in every particular, and on all occasions. Three hence, also, speaking of his society, he said, we must be always ready to advance against the enemy, and be always prepared to harass him or to fall upon him, and on that account we must not venture to tie ourselves to any particular place. For that is, that Jesuits must secretly skulk about over the world, without habitations or homes, and, paying no allegiance to any opposing authority, to harass Protestants wheresoever they are found like freebooters upon the sea leaving no tracks behind them. 3 Greisinger, pages 48, etc. 4 Ibid, pages 63. The chief thing with the Jesuits, says Greisinger, was to obtain the sole direction of education, so that by getting the young into their hands, they could fashion through after their own pattern, and, by holding them down to the low standard of passive and uninquiring obedience, fit them to become subservient slaves of monarchical and papal power. Nobody need be told the impressible character of the youthful mind, or how the stamp made upon it becomes indelible. Loyola understood this, and, realizing the impossibility of arresting the progressive advancement of Germany under Protestant influences, or to uproot the tolerant spirit that prevailed there among both Protestants and Roman Catholics, by any of the usual methods of papal coercion, he insidiously planned the scheme of bringing Germany back to papal obedience by Jesuitical training of the German schools. The process was slow, it is true, but the stake was great. And no man could have known better than he how surely it would be one, if the minds of the young could be cramped and dwarfed by Jesuit teaching. In the Jesuit seminaries and schools, at the period here referred to, the Latin language being the language of the church grammar, and rhetoric were taught, preparatory to a college course, which last was confined to philosophy and theology. The latter was regarded as the most important, because it culminated in obedience to papal authority, and was centered in the idea that it was impossible to reach heaven by any other methods than those prescribed by the Roman Church. Of course, no education could be perfected, in the estimation of the Jesuits, that did not conform to their own standard by requiring the pupils to surrender their manhood into the keeping of their superiors, as they had done themselves, and thereby become pieces of human machinery, to be moved about at the will and pleasure of those whom they were taught to regard as God's vice-regents upon earth. No matter where Jesuit colleges or schools have existed, or yet exist, this has always been the primary and chief object and end of the education furnished by them. When it stops short of this, it is a failure. But when this object is accomplished, the society exultingly adds its fresh recruits to the papal militia, to be marshaled against Protestantism, Enlightenment, and popular government, under commanders who never tolerate disobedience. Pope Julius III, successor of Paul III in aid of the conspiracy against Germany, granted an extension of the privileges originally conferred upon the Jesuits, and, at the suggestion of Loyola, authorized him to establish a German college Collegium Germaniae in Rome. The object of this was, not to teach the German language to the Spanish, French, and Italian pupils then being educated in Rome in the Collegium Bominum, but to procure German youths to be taught there under Jesuit auspices and the patronage of the Pope, so that upon their return home they would disseminate Jesuit opinions and influences among the people, and thus arrest the progress of Protestantism, and put an end to the religious toleration prevailing among the Protestant and Roman Catholic Germans. In execution of this purpose, steps were at once taken to procure from Germany some young men, 
to be brought to Rome and put in training for the ecclesiastical subjugation of their countrymen. That such was the sole object will not be doubted by any intelligent investigator of the facts. Germany was well supplied with colleges and schools where the standard of education was higher than at Rome. But they were under Protestant management and control, and therefore considered heretical. It was the odious form of heresy embodied in Protestantism that Loyola and his followers were sworn to exterminate, and these young Germans were carried to Rome that they might be disciplined and educated for that purpose to undermine the institutions of their own country. Have the Jesuits ever changed their purpose to make the extermination of Protestantism a leading and central feature of their educational system? Have they abandoned any of the methods employed by Loyola himself for that purpose? We shall see as our investigations proceed. But the institution of a Jesuit college at Rome was not the only means employed, inasmuch as more immediate and active measures were considered necessary. Therefore, whilst it was left to bear its fruits at a later period, the Jesuits sent into Germany some of their prudent and sagacious members, such as they supposed would be likely to exercise influence over the princes, so that through them the whole German population might be reached. These princes were the acknowledged representatives of monarchism, and it was believed that if they could be persuaded to accept the Jesuit emissaries as their allies, the usual methods of papal compulsion could be employed with impunity. In this the Jesuits calculated sagaciously, and were enabled to establish several colleges in Germany, and ultimately to begin an open and direct war upon Protestantism. They did not invoke the aid of reason. They neither invited nor allowed calm discussion with learned Protestant theologians, but relied entirely upon the united authority of the Pope and the princes, that is, upon monarchical power. Finding the Lutherans and the Calvinists divided upon theological questions, they availed themselves of every opportunity to incite them to mutual strife, insisting, as they have ever since continued to do, that there can be but one true form of Christian faith, which every human being is obliged to accept, or to offend God. Seemingly insensible to the fact that the Creator has made the minds of men to differ as their faces and features, they were sagacious enough to know that differences of opinion upon religious as upon all other subjects could be prevented only by force and coercion. Therefore, to compel uniformity of faith and to uproot Protestantism, they persuaded some of the princes, especially those of Bavaria, to believe that the principle of monarchy was endangered, and would be entirely destroyed, if the influences of the Reformation were not obliterated. That such was, and yet is, the natural effect of these influences is true. And therefore, as these princes could easily see that, if popular institutions were established in Germany, their princely occupations would be threatened, they became the willing tools of the Jesuits. The Duke of Bavaria was one of the most submissive, as he was the most willing to become a persecutor. He had been educated by the Jesuits, and consequently was soon induced to exhibit the utmost earnestness in adopting measures for destroying all the influences of the Reformation, and putting an end to Protestantism. Five, he was resolved, says Nicolini, not to leave a vestige of those new doctrines which, for the last forty years, had been spreading so fast in his kingdom. Neither he nor the Jesuits made the least disguise of the fact that all their efforts WRR directed to the single object of preventing the freedom of religious belief. His first step to this end was to require that the profession of faith prescribed by the Council of Trent should be subscribed and adhered to. That is, that Protestants should renounce the religion which their consciences approved, 
and accept that which their consciences did not approve, that the people might be brought into obedience and forced to this, he sent through all the provinces swarms of Jesuits, accompanied by bands of troopers, whose bayonets came to the aid of the preachers when their eloquence was unsuccessful in converting the heretics that is, the Protestants. Those who remained unsubdued were expelled from their estates. Prohibited books were seized and burned. All the ancient practices were revived. And, above all, says Rank, the Jesuit institutions were promoted. For by their agency it was, that the youth of Bavaria were to be educated in a spirit of strict orthodoxy which meant then, what with the Jesuits it still means, opposition to religious freedom. For a time the Jesuits were restrained in Austria by Ferdinand and Maximilian. But during the reign of Rudolf II they became bolder and more exacting. The provincial of the society obtained great influence over Rudolf, and was urgent in his demands that he should extirpate heresy from his dominions. At last he succeeded in inducing Rudolf to inaugurate a general persecution of the Lutherans, and the greatest atrocity and the utmost rigor were displayed in destroying every trace of Protestantism. The work of extirpation began in the cities. The reformed clergy were removed, and their places filled by Catholic priests. A religious formula was prescribed, which required universal assent to the doctrine that everything is true which the Church of Rome has laid down as the rule of life and doctrine, and that the Pope is the head of one apostolic church. The Protestants were expelled from all offices of state. Papists alone could become burghers. Doctors' degrees in the universities were conferred only upon those who subscribed to the Roman Confession of Faith. The Jesuit schools were governed by regulations, which prescribed Catholic formularies, fasts, worship, according to the Catholic ritual, and all the pupils were taught the Jesuit catechism. All Protestant books were seized and taken away from booksellers' shops, and all that were found in the custom houses were confiscated. And the historian, summing it all up, says, all through Germany the same proceedings were resorted to, and everywhere we find the Jesuits foremost in the reaction. There was no bishop, no prince, who went to visit a province upon religious concerns, who did not bring with him a troop of Jesuits, who, on his departure, were often left there with almost unlimited powers. 5 History of the Popes By Inc. Book 5, pages 172, etc. Leon Blankard's edition Nicolini, pages 199. Greisinger, pages 211, etc. History of Germany. By Lewis. Chap, XPII, pages 398, etc. The task of becoming familiar with the history of those times is formidable. But its performance will amply repay the careful and thoughtful student, inasmuch as the events which then transpired materially influenced the subsequent condition of the world especially did they influence that current of affairs which caused the most enlightened nations to drift towards religious freedom and popular government, the two great and inseparable factors in modern progress. At the period here referred to, true Christian civilization, as inspired by the charity and gentleness exhibited in the life of Christ, seemed to hang, for a time, at equipoise in the balance. The struggle for mastery between the light of the Reformation and the darkness of the Middle Ages was long and fierce, and occasionally doubtful. One cannot fail to see that the spirit of liberty had been so nearly crushed out by the monarchism of church and state, 
that it required the finger of providence to point out the way to the revival of primitive Christianity and the restoration of its beneficial influences upon the consciences and lives of the vast multitudes who had been long held in inferiority. The student will find the conflict instructive at every point. It will bring into view perfidy and treachery where there ought to have been confidence and fair dealing, shameful betrayals of the cause of truth and justice, and the heartless sacrifice of many thousands of inoffensive people. It will show popes and kings uniting their power in the cause of oppression and wrong, and shamelessly practicing vices condemned equally by the laws of God and man. Many figures conspicuous in history will appear. Among them that of the great Emperor Charles V. He will be seen procuring imperial dominion over a people he did not know, and whose language he could neither speak nor understand. Quarreling with the Pope one day and threatening to subvert his throne, and becoming reconciled the next, in order that monarchism should be strengthened. Sending savage hordes of armed men to crush out the spirit of religious liberty in his native Netherlands by blood and murder promising protection to the German Protestants in order to obtain their assistance in his war against the Turks, and afterwards betraying and persecuting them for heresy. Uniting for a time with the Pope against the King of France, and then with the King of France against the Pope. Forcing the Pope to convene the General Council, and pretending to grant by his famous interim some shadowy rights to Protestants, in order that they might ultimately be compelled to accept the faith as the Council should decree. And at last, when his successes were turned into adversities and his tortuous policy involved him in disappointment, abdicating his royal authority, retiring to a monastery, and confiding the infamous work of persecuting Protestants and desolating his native land to his cold-blooded and murderous son. Then, as the scene shifts, Philip II will appear, with his vicegerent, the Duke of Alba, and his bloodthirsty crew, the sounds of whose warlike bugles were drowned by the piercing cries of their Protestant victims. Then may also be seen, passing in panoramic view, the whole land of the Netherlands drenched in the blood of innocent and persecuted Protestants. The Spanish and Italian Inquisitions carrying on their horrible work with so much activity that its machinery was never still. France trembling upon the threshold of ruin, and her kings and queens forming leagues with the Huguenots, to be immediately and perfidiously violated. And Germany torn into factions by the discord between princes and people which was born of Jesuit intrigue, offering a tempting field to the emissaries of the papacy, wherein usurped and illegitimate authority might revel whilst the sacred militia of Loyola rejoiced at the triumph they had won over Protestantism and free religious thought. 6 Nicolini, pages 201-202 For these particulars see also Rock, Griesinger, Steinmetz, and Lewis. Through all these courses of events the Jesuits steadily appeared alike indifferent to the wounds they inflicted upon the church and the agonies of their unnumbered victims. As confessors and confidants of kings, their exertions to which route the world and the pall of monarchism were ceaseless and untiring. They climbed into offices of state and molded the temple policy of popes and kings. They moved sovereigns from right to left, forward or backward, as children amused themselves with toys. They exchanged the humble worship of the altar for the glitter of courts, as if Christ in his life had set the example of ambitious display. They enrolled sovereigns and princes in the ranks of their defenders, and by their help drove Protestant preachers from their pulpits, Protestant professors and teachers from their colleges and schools, and Protestant people into the deepest depths of humiliation, 
by such measures of compulsion and repression as it must have required the inventive faculties of fiends to discover. All these things transpired in Europe during the terrible conflict between Protestantism and reaction. But in no other portion of the continental states was the difference between the opposing forces more distinctly marked than in Germany, after the Jesuits, by means of their control of education, became enabled to check the progress of popular enlightenment, and force the nation back again into the old groups of ignorance and superstition. From the first entry of the Jesuits into Germany the peace of the country was seriously disturbed. We have seen how thoroughly reconciled to each other were those of all the shades of religious faith. Members of the Church of Rome and Protestants were in perfect accord upon all matters involving the welfare of Germany, neither concerning themselves about the religious opinions of the other. In this respect it was as it should have been, and ought yet to be throughout the Christian world. And the happiness and progressive prosperity of Germany was assured by it, until the spoiler came in the form of Jesuitism, not as the bearer of messages of peace and goodwill from Rome, but the vast progeny of evils which, in the age of fable, were supposed to have escaped when Pandora's jar was broken. They let these loose upon the land without shame or remorse, until society was convulsed from center to circumference, peaceful homes were desolated, hearts that had rejoiced were broken, all under the irreverent pretense that it was for the greater glory of God. Let it not be forgotten that Germany was indebted to Protestantism for her condition of peace and prosperity. We have seen that the demoralized condition of the clergy was employed by Loyola to justify the papal approval of his society, and the learned Jesuit historian, the Abbey Maynard, is forced to admit that when Luther gave the first impulse to the Reformation, the clergy of Germany offered a sad example of corrupted faith and relaxed morals. He calls it a mournful period. Seven notwithstanding for a thousand years these and other evils had been growing and spreading under the patronage of Rome. The papacy then dictated the Christianity of Germany. Mark the difference when Luther, Melanchthon, Bucer, and Karlstadt announced the necessity for reform, and put the ball of the Reformation in motion. The great rank, whose impartiality has extorted even Jesuit praise, when referring to the effect produced by the Reformation in Germany, says. In short, from west to east and from north to south, throughout all Germany, Protestantism had unquestionably the preponderance. The nobility were attached to it from the very first. The body of public functionaries, already in those days numerous and important, was trained up in the new doctrine. The common people would hear no more of certain articles such, for instance, as purgatory or of certain ceremonies, such as the pilgrimages. Not a man durst come forward with holy relics. A Venetian ambassador calculates, in the year 1558, that but a tenth part of the inhabitants of Germany still clung to the ancient faith. Maynard also refers to this approvingly, and the Jesuits make it a matter of boasting, in order to support their claim to superior merit for having extirpated so much Protestant heresy, and for bringing back such multitudes of people to papal obedience. Nine Protestants to one Papist. Germany, then, was a Protestant nation, governed by Protestant authorities, under Protestant laws, tolerant towards all who adhered to the ancient faith, allowing no interference with the freedom of religious opinions, happy, prosperous, and free, under her own institutions. In these respects she was in the same condition as the United States is today, so far as she could be in the absence of written constitutional guarantees. 
Seven, the Studies and Teachings of the Jesuits, by M. La Maynard, page 89. Eight rank, book 5, pages 165. What people upon earth, other than the Germans themselves, had the just right, under the law of nations or any other human law, to interfere with their condition, or to plot, openly or secretly, against their independence. What was all this, however, to the Pope or to the Jesuits? From whence did they derive the authority to form a conspiracy at Rome to invade Germany, overthrow her existing institutions, bind the limbs of her people with fetters they had already broken, to gather up the rusty iron they had cast away, and reforge it into manacles to hold them in obedience to an alien and foreign power? Was this conspiracy commanded by the law of God? If it was, wherein is that law changed? If not changed, and God's laws are all immutable, may not the Jesuits of today enter into fresh conspiracies to subvert the present institutions of Germany, or of Great Britain, or of the United States, or of any other nation that maintains the principles of Protestantism and the freedom of conscience? These questions command the most serious thought, and are pregnant with considerations we are not allowed to put aside. Before this volume closes, answers to all of them may be so plainly discovered as to enable the friends of free thought and popular government to see wherein their greatest danger lies. The Jesuits, says Bank, conquered the Germans on their own soil, in their very home, and wrested from them a part of their native land. Will there not be other conquests to be achieved by them so long as the freedom of conscience is sheltered and guaranteed by Protestant institutions? Chapter 8. The Jesuits in England. The conspiracy to overthrow the Protestant institutions of Germany furnished a precedent in dealing with other governments. That against England was characterized by some peculiarities, owing to its having been subject to the spiritual dominion of the Pope until the reign of Henry VIII, and afterwards under that of Mary. As there are no instances in history where a people have surrendered the control over their institutions without a struggle, unless previously reduced to absolute imbecility, the inauguration and progress of this conspiracy furnish a great many object lessons of special interest to all in the United States who hold in kindly remembrance the struggles of our English ancestry for liberty. When Henry VIII quarreled with the Pope, it was only about his divorce. Religion was not involved. He maintained the dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church until his death. But in order to give license to his passions, he caused himself to be recognized by a submissive parliament as taking the place of the Pope in the religious affairs of England not, however, as the head of the national church, which did not distinctively exist as such until the subsequent reign of Edward VI as between him and the Pope, the dispute was about authority, not doctrine. It excited intense anger in the minds of both, and this was soon imparted to their respective adherents. Each was familiar with the methods of persecution and the implements of coercion, long in use to produce uniformity of faith, and they were equally ready to employ them. There were, however, differences between them worthy of being noted. The highest aspiration of Henry was to govern England. The Pope reached out after the spiritual government of the world. The Pope, without the sanction and authority of the Church, claimed personal infallibility. Henry did not. They were consequently formidable antagonists. Trained within the same circle of events, with minds disciplined by the same doctrinal teachings, and entirely agreed about the employment of compulsion in matters of faith, each dealt with the other as a mere competitor for power. 
The Pope Paul III endeavored to bring his royal antagonist to terms by excommunication. But Henry defied it and its accompanying anathemas. In proportion as the passions of the Pope became intensified by resistance to his spiritual authority, the measures designed to reduce England to obedience became more violent. Henry was denounced as a traitor to heaven and the church, and threatened with all the consequences implied by that denunciation. The Pope endeavored to induce the Emperor Charles V and Francis I of France to invade England, make conquest of the country, and bring it again into obedience to him. But these monarchs feared the consequences, and prudently declined the undertaking. Disappointed in this, the Pope hastened to solicit the aid of Loyola, who without delay provided Jesuits to be sent to England as spies, and to plot secretly against Henry. These emissaries were privately instructed by Loyola himself. And in Asmuch as these instructions had been made known, and are admitted by the Jesuits, they served to show the uses to which Loyola intended to put his society. The philosophy of history is often left unperceived by omitting to observe the force of such evidence as this. After counseling them to practice great prudence and circumspection in conversing with others, so as to unveil the depth of their sentiments that is, to draw out their secret thoughts Loyola proceeded to instruct them that, in order to conciliate to yourselves the goodwill of men in the desire of extending the kingdom of God, you will make yourselves all things to all men, after the example of the apostle in order to gain them to Jesus Christ. And he tells them further that, when the devil attacks a just man, he does not let him see his snares therefore they must imitate him, in order to entice men into Jesuit snares. When taken as a whole, these instructions were manifestly designed so to train all Jesuits as to make them, according to Nicolini, crafty, insinuating, deceitful. Cretino, a Jesuit, attempts to argue, continues Nicolini, that they had reference to religious and not to political matters, and this is the only defense he offers for them. But this is itself Jesuitical, inasmuch as these emissaries were sent to England upon a mission involving politico-religious affairs that is, the policy established by the government of England in regard to the relations between it and the Pope. Whether right or wrong, the English people established these relations for themselves, as they had the undoubted right to do, and no alien or foreign power, whether employed by the Pope or any other monarch, could rightfully interfere with them. These emissaries of Loyola and the Pope visited Ireland and Scotland. But with the exception of intriguing with James V of Scotland, their mission was ineffectual, and they returned to Rome. Henry was not seriously disturbed by them. Nor was there any other attempt to introduce the Jesuits into England until after the death of Queen Mary, whose persecution of the Protestants was sufficiently satisfactory to the papacy without their aid. Their introduction during her reign had been opposed and defeated by Cardinal Pole, an Englishman. But whether he was hostile to them, or considered the existing system of persecution perfect enough without them, is not clearly shown. We are thus brought to a portion of English history specially interesting and instructive to all who hold in admiration the civil institutions of the United States. For they have read history to but little purpose who do not know how. 1 Nicolini, pages 65. Steinmetz, Vol. I, pages 302. The events of that period gave stability to principles which now constitute fundamental parts of our national polity. Tracing our pedigree back to its English source, 
It is as easy to see our intimate relations with the Elizabethan era as it is to follow the little rivulets in the valleys or upon the mountains in their courses to the sea. On this account some particularity of detail is rendered necessary, or else some matters of historic interest, not generally observed, may be omitted. During the reign of Elizabeth the papal authorities renewed their exertions to put a stop to Protestantism in England, and sent more Jesuits there for that purpose. These satellites of the Pope, says the historian, entered the country under fictitious names, and as stealthily as nocturnal robbers, mendacious in every word they uttered, and exciting the people to rebellion against the impious queen. To the vigilance of Elizabeth, however, was of such a character that she was not easily taken by surprise and their plottings against her became less effective than they and the Pope had anticipated. Accordingly other Jesuits were sent to Scotland to encourage Queen Mary, and hold her steadfast in the faith. But they were unsuccessful in the attempt to stir up rebellion there, and being fearful of detection and arrest, escaped out of the country as fugitives from justice. Nevertheless they accomplished one thing, which was to carry away with them several young English noblemen, to be educated by the Jesuits in Flanders, so as to fit them for treason against their own country repeating in this the experiment Loyola had made in Germany. All these movements, although not immediately followed by any direct consequences, tend to show how ready the Jesuits were to make secret and incendiary war upon anything or any country upon which the pontifical curse was resting. And they show, moreover, their subtle methods of procedure how they were trained and educated in adroitness and cunning, the more easily to mislead others. How they raised hypocrisy and deceit up to the side of virtue. How they endeavored to attach to falsehood the merit which belongs alone to truth. And how, in order to be all things to all men, they were required to be what they were not, or not to be what they were, in order by deception to accomplish the subjugation of England to the authority of the Pope. To Nicolini, Pages 151, 152, note. The Jesuits endeavored to become the educators of English youths as they had those of Germany. They understood, and have not yet forgotten, the value of this. The Pope therefore established an English college at Rome, to educate young Englishmen for the traitorous purpose of destroying English institutions. Loyola conceived Tim's idea as a covert and strategic method of uprooting obnoxious governments, and the Pope accepted it as an effective plan of conspiracy. This college became a hotbed of treason. The young men were doubtless instructed that the gates of heaven would be opened to them in no other way, and that country and patriotism were unmeaning phrases, of no significance when weighed in the scale against the interests of the papacy and the Jesuits. None had better understood than they that he who guides the youth, directs the destinies of man. The young Englishmen, educated at this college in Rome to hate their country and its sovereign, reached the highest round in the ladder of collegiate culture when they were brought to realize this as the central feature of religious faith. It takes a peculiar training to pluck out entirely from the mind all the tender and holy memories of home and country, of family and friends and no others in the world except the Jesuits have ever undertaken it. They boast of this as one of the prominent principles of their system, and the distinguishing merit of their society. By means of it they succeeded well at Rome, and sent back to England a swarm of conspirators, charged with the special duty of winning a conquest over the government, plucking Protestantism up by the roots, and re-establishing the papal scepter, which Henry VIII, in the pursuit of his illicit amours, had broken. Elizabeth as queen, 
was the great obstacle to papal success. Her position was a peculiar one. At the beginning of her reign she had been tolerant towards her Roman Catholic subjects, and they were permitted to enjoy their religion and mode of worship without interference, notwithstanding the severities practiced towards the Protestants during the preceding reign of Mary. All historians agree, and the Roman Catholic lingered is candid enough to admit, that she retained in her royal council eleven of those who had served under Mary, and appointed only eight of her own selection an extraordinary instance of impartiality and conservatism. She preferred the reformed religion, but contrived, says Lingard, to balance the hopes and fears of the two parties six which she must have done from an honest purpose to see that justice should be shown to both, and that religious strife and discord should cease. Her want of success in this most desirable object can be attributed to no other cause than the machinations of the Jesuits. 4. Whatsoever may be thought of the fierce and angry controversy which followed, the evidence is conclusive that they were the main reliance of the Pope in the subsequent inauguration and prosecution of civil war in England. If it had not been their special avocation to enter into plots and conspiracies against all governments and peoples who rejected the absolute rule of the Pope and doctrine and morals, and if they had not actively engaged in their work during the reign of Elizabeth, the memory of Mary's bloody and persecuting reign might, in a large degree, have been blotted out and this impartial policy of Elizabeth might have induced the Christians of different religious faiths to live in peace and mutual toleration, as they did in Germany before that country was blighted by the curse of Jesuitism. But taught by the Jesuits not to submit to equality merely, but to demand absolute and unqualified superiority and dominion by the entire suppression of Protestantism, the English Roman Catholics were encouraged to form leagues and combinations and conspiracies against the Queen. Protestantism, and the government. 3. History of England. By Lingard. Vol. B.I., pages 4. C. Also, Hume, Vol. I.V., pages 4. Under these circumstances, Elizabeth could not have remained unresisting if she had desired. To have done so would have been a treasonable abandonment of the country of which she was the legitimate sovereign. Not only was she assailed in all her rights as queen, but the Pope, adopting the views and opinions of the Jesuits, impudently attempted to justify resistance to her authority upon the ground that she was an illegitimate daughter of Henry VIII by Anne Boleyn, and therefore had no just right to exact obedience to her authority. He went further than this, and claimed jurisdiction over her conscience by commanding her to accept the communion of the Roman Church, which, with queenly dignity, she refused. He required her to send ambassadors to the Council of Trent, and this she also declined to do. When she imprisoned Mary, Queen of Scots, he usurped jurisdiction over the case, although Mary was an English subject, and undertook to procure her release, for the reason only that she preferred Romanism to Protestantism. He sought the aid of the kings of France and Spain to make war upon England in the name of religion, to release Mary, dethrone Elizabeth, and seize upon her crown. Failing in all these things, and being baffled by Elizabeth, he caused a prosecution to be instituted at Rome to try and the papal court her title to the crown of sham and farce as ineffective as it was ridiculous and discreditable. It is difficult to imagine a more presumptuous and impotent proceeding. But it is instructive as showing the pretensions of the popes of that period. In the papal indictment Elizabeth was accused, among other things, of rejecting the ancient and supporting the new worship of having received the sacrament after the manner of heretics.
of having chosen known heretics for the lords of her council, and of having imposed an oath derogating from the rights of the Holy See. V. the Queen, of course, did not appear. But, nevertheless, she was held to be in default, and the trial was conducted in the papal form. Twelve English Roman Catholics, who are represented as exiles for their religion, were examined as witnesses, and, after their evidence was heard and considered, the judges pronounced their opinion that she had incurred the canonical penalties of heresy. The major one of these, which included all the minors, was the forfeiture of her crown. That is, her actual dethronement. It is to be supposed that, in the decree of the Roman Curia, all this was recorded in solemn form. But this decree, like those of other courts, did not execute itself. Therefore, the Pope provided for its execution by issuing his pontifical bull, with all necessary gravity and composure, whereby he pronounced Elizabeth guilty of heresy, deprived of her pretended right to the crown of England, and absolved her subjects from all allegiance to her. Notwithstanding the long period intervening between those in the present times, we are not relieved from the obligation and necessity of understanding fully upon what pretense of authority Pius V assumed the prerogative right to pluck from the head of the English Queen a crown placed there with practical, if not absolute, unanimity by the English people. It is not enough to say that these things occurred in another agent under circumstances peculiar to that age. This may sufficiently explain the conduct of individuals and the character and structure of governments, all of which have ever been and will continue to be, liable to change. But the laws of God, founded in divine wisdom, are not subject to these changes. The creative power of the deity alone can change them. It is the special boast of the Papists and the Jesuits that the system of laws which governs the papacy has the stamp of divine approval upon it, and that, therefore, it has always been, and still remains, the same separate eating is their motto. Hence it is important to us to know the nature and extent of the spiritual powers asserted by Pius V over the English government and people, in order to ascertain whether, if a parallel case existed today, or may exist hereafter, the same papal powers may not be again invoked. The question which most concerns us is not whether they may or may not be asserted, but whether or no they have been embodied in the canon law of the Roman Church, and have been thereby stamped with the character of perpetuity. No special pleading, however adroit, can make the issue otherwise. Lingard, Vol. V.I., pages 110. Nicolini, pages 153. The question tried and decided at Rome by the Papal Curia, insofar as it involved the right to the English crown, was exclusively political, and the Pope could not rightfully change its character by assuming that it was brought within his spiritual jurisdiction by virtue of the universality of his spiritual powers. It was an English and not a Roman question. By the existing laws of England, Elizabeth was the rightful and hereditary heir to the throne, and had possession of the crown. It had been so decided by the Parliament, and ratified by the people with a unanimity almost unknown in those times. She was queen not only de facto, but de jure. By what mode of reasoning or by what perversion of language could the Pope take to himself jurisdiction over such a question? England was governed by laws, and whether they appear to us now to have been right or wrong, they were her own laws, enacted by her rightful authorities. They were exclusively political laws, provided for her own government and people. The Pope was the spiritual head of the Church at Rome, 
with a recognized jurisdiction over the spiritual welfare of those who regarded themselves as within the jurisdiction. By the methods of reasoning then adopted by the English nation, and now familiar to all intelligent American minds, all who chose to remain within that spiritual jurisdiction had the perfect right to do so. All who did not, had an equal right to withdraw from it. Rights of this character concern individuals, not nations, except as their populations shall decide, in which case they may submit or not to this jurisdiction at their pleasure. The English nation, by its domestic laws, had established a system of government suitable for itself, and had placed its crown upon Elizabeth's head. To say that the Pope had the divine right, as the spiritual head of the Church at Rome, to set this national government aside, and substitute for it another dictated by himself, and after the papal model, means this, and only this, that his spiritual power includes political and temporal power over all nations, to the extent of requiring them to adopt whatsoever form of religious faith the popes shall prescribe, to the absolute exclusion of all other forms. And it allows him, moreover, to employ for that purpose, against every domestic law to the contrary, all the papal machinery of coercion. The decree pronounced at Rome against Elizabeth affirms, in effect, that such is the canon law, that is, the law of the Church. Have the provisions of that law been authoritatively changed or abrogated since the time of Pius V and Elizabeth? It may be necessary to find an answer to this question when we come to see, as we shall, that, at Jesuit dictation, it has been authoritatively announced that the time has come, or is rapidly approaching, when the canon law of the Roman Church shall be introduced into the United States, to supersede such of our laws, national and state, as are in conflict with it. For the present, we must not pass by too rapidly the conflict between the Pope and Elizabeth to the principles involved in which enough consideration is not generally given in order that we may comprehend fully what it meant, and how, in the end, it turned the nations upon their progressive courses, and brought them where they now are. In all history there are few more instructive lessons. In carrying on the war against Elizabeth, the Jesuits did not forget the work of educating young Englishmen so as to make them believe that treason was one of the highest virtues when dictated by what they chose to consider the interests of religion. That is, of the papacy or of their society, just as we have seen they did in Germany. Among other seminaries of learning, they had one at Rheims, in France, established by the Cardinal of Lorraine, one of the most vindictive persecutors of the Huguenots. They had another at Douai also in France. From these, colonies of Jesuits were sent to England every year, instructed and trained to subvert the English government, and particularly to vilify and calumniate Elizabeth by accusing her of leading a licentious and voluptuous private life. It is not easy to understand what force was intended to be given to this accusation, as an argument against her right to the crown in view of the fact that a life tenfold more licentious and voluptuous than that falsely charged against Elizabeth did not invalidate the right of Pope Alexander VI to the papal crowning the headship of the church at Rome. Nevertheless, the Jesuits availed themselves of it, without regard either to its truthfulness or their own consistency. They were educated to this peculiar kind of work, and it was considered their duty to educate others in the same way leaving the consequences to take care of themselves. Hume gives this account of these Jesuit emissaries to England. They infused into all their votaries an extreme hatred against the Queen, whom they treated as a usurper, a schismatic, a heretic, a persecutor of the Orthodox, 
and one solemnly and publicly anathematized by the Holy Father. Sedition, rebellion, sometimes assassination, were the expedients by which they intended to effect their purposes against her, five pretending to find in the existing state of things in England justification for all this, even for the assassination of the Queen. Two Jesuit leaders Campion and Parson were sent from Rome to give direction to the movements of the conspirators already there. In order more effectually to encourage treason and sedition, they pretended to be Protestants not being ashamed of this false profession, because the obligation to practice deception when necessary was instilled into their minds by Jesuit training, and, on that account, created no compunctions of conscience. When Parson reached Dover, the better to practice his disguise, he wore the uniform of an English army officer, and pretended to be such. In this way he deceived the inspecting officer, and arranged with him for the safe passage of Campion, whom he represented as a fellow officer, who would follow in a few days. It may thus be seen how easy it is to be all things to all men, when those who desire to become so have quieted their consciences with the belief that falsehood and deception may be rightfully employed in promoting the greater glory of God. Howsoever incomprehensible may be the casuistry by which the mind can be brought to this belief, it is perfectly plain to a Jesuit, and is doubtless explained in their schools. Six History of England By Hume Vole I.V. Pages 182 It is exceedingly difficult to separate the truth from the false in the history of the times here referred to. The passions of the rival parties became so intense as seemingly to render agreement between them impossible, either with regard to facts or conclusions. It may not even be safe to assume that the truth lies midway between the extremes. But there is always, in the influences and effects produced by any given period of time, that which explains the motives and purposes of the chief actors. By careful investigation of these, we acquire a knowledge of the philosophy of history. Conducting our investigations in this spirit, we cannot fail to conclude that the interference with the domestic and internal affairs of England by an alien and foreign power was a flagrant act of usurpation, unless the spiritual authority of the Pope gave him rightful jurisdiction over temporal and political questions in that country. And if he did rightfully possess this jurisdiction in 1570, when Pius V fulminated his pontifical bull against Elizabeth, and derived it from the divine law, we, of the present age, and especially in the United States, cannot refrain from inquiring whether, from the Jesuit standpoint, Leo XII does not possess the same jurisdiction derived from the same law. Without pressing this inquiry here, however, it is deemed more essential to ascertain still more minutely how far the Jesuits were responsible for sowing the seeds of discord and civil war in England, when otherwise Protestants and Roman Catholics might, at the Elizabethan period, have lived and associated harmoniously together, as they did in Germany before the Jesuits appeared there. Many intelligent readers of history failed to give due consideration to the events of this important period. We have seen upon the authority of Lingard, a papal historian that Elizabeth was, at the beginning of her reign, desirous of holding an equal balance between the rival bodies of Christians. Her mind was not fully made up with regard to her own faith, although it is probable she was inclined to Protestantism. There were reasons for this, some of which may have been controlling with a masculine mind like hers. The relations between her father, Henry Eighth and the papacy must have created impressions not favorable to the Pope as a sharer in her governing power over the English people, 
and the reign of her sister Mary must have tended to strengthen, rather than remove, these impressions. She could not have failed to know that Mary's marriage to Philip II of Spain had brought with it to England a series of calamities, the remembrance of which must have made her not only sorrowful, but indignant. If Mary's natural inclination had been kindly and her heart benevolent, it must have been apparent to Elizabeth that these good qualities had been exchanged for others of the very opposite character, which had incited her to prosecute her Protestant subjects in the spirit of intense religious bigotry, and as if God were acceptably served by shedding blood. And when, upon coming to the throne as the immediate successor of Mary, she found herself confronted by the terrible condition into which England had been thrown with every evil passion aroused, and little ground for hope of the future nothing was more natural than the belief that this state of things had been produced, mainly if not entirely, by the unfortunate marriage of Mary with Philip II, who possessed such a combination of bad qualities as left room for scarcely a single good one. Sullen, morose, and selfish, Philip separated himself from everything in life calculated to encourage good or benevolent emotions, and gave free play to that bad ambition which led him to desolate the Netherlands by cruelties as unparalleled as they were atrocious. He had no affection for Mary, being incapable of any such emotion. His marriage with her was a matter of policy alone one of those political unions which, in the course of time, had produced evils to all the governments of Europe. He had inherited religious fanaticism from his father, Charles V., but without any of the better qualities of the latter and gave such excessive indulgence to his hatred of Protestants that nothing rejoiced him so much as to know that the dungeons of the Inquisition were crowded with them, and that none of them escaped the rack, the thumbscrew, and the flames. The best people in England Roman Catholics as well as Protestants had feared, when this ill-fated marriage was proposed, that the bloody scenes so often witnessed on the continent would be repeated there, and for that reason opposed it. But state policy prevailed and the popular will was of no avail. England, thus united with Spain, became subject to the influence of Philip, who employed it over Mary, to make her, like himself, the obedient instrument of papal outrages. English persecution hitherto had one distinguishing characteristic, in this, that Henry VIII had visited his vengeance upon both Protestants and Roman Catholics, who were bound alike to the stake and burned to death because of resistance to his royal power and assumed right in an imitation of the Pope, to hold the consciences of individuals in subjugation. Elizabeth knew all this. Her strong and sagacious mind was penetrating enough to foresee that, unless this disheartening course of events could be in some way changed, England would remain where Mary had left her a mere appendage to the papacy and thereby reduced to a condition of inferiority among the nations from which she might never recover. When Philip proposed to marry Elizabeth for whom he had no more affection than he had for her sister she was brought to realize, if she had not already done so, that the future destiny of England was mainly in her hands. From motives of policy she took time to deliberate before accepting or rejecting this proposition of marriage by Philip. Whilst holding it under advisement, she suggested that it would violate the law of the church, inasmuch as their relationship brought them within the prohibited degrees. But when Philip proposed that he would obtain a dispensation from the Pope, she saw at once that it was a well-matured scheme to bring her to acknowledge the jurisdiction of the Pope over English affairs of state, and consequently declined Philip's proposal. And thus was broken the alliance between the two crowns of England and Spain, 
and Elizabeth was left to protect herself against foreign interference in taking care of the internal affairs of her own country. The occasion demanded that she should assert herself by taking the affairs of the nation in her own hands, and the result has long since proved how well and conspicuously she did so. Elizabeth was wise. Her bitterest enemies concede this. Whilst she may have inclined to Protestantism, she had not, at the beginning of her reign, acquired any positive dislike to the Roman Catholic religion. On the contrary, the Roman Catholic bishops and lords were disposed to regard her exhibition of tolerance as indicating that she would, at least, act with justice and impartiality towards them. Camden, the historian, says that, during Mary's reign, Elizabeth had intimated to Cardinal Pole that she had a disposition to prefer Roman Catholicism. Howsoever this may have been, she not only sometimes attended confession, but assisted at divine service after the manner of the Roman Church. Lingard says, she continued to assist, and occasionally to communicate, at Mass. She buried her sister with all the solemnities of the Catholic ritual and she ordered a solemn dirge and a mass of requiem for the soul of the Emperor Charles V. Six influenced by these considerations, and probably by others of the same character, the House of Lords composed entirely of Roman Catholics declared in her favor, and the Commons having readily and unanimously approved their decision, she was proclaimed Queen with the acclamations of the people. Thus her right to the crown was settled by the highest authority in the kingdom. There was not a murmur of discontent. Some regretted the death of Mary, but there was a general desire that the barbarities practiced during her reign should cease. In that desire Elizabeth manifestly shared, as is well established by the fact, already stated, that she retained thirteen of Mary's counselors, and appointed only eight Protestants. She could have meant nothing else by this than to express the desire that religious persecution should cease, odd that the two religious parties should in the future live in peace with each other and thus enabled the country to develop into greatness. The first attack upon her right to the crown was made by Henry II of France, and not by her Roman Catholic subjects. Henry was thoroughly indoctrinated with the persecuting spirit which prevailed in France among the defenders of the papacy, and was dominated over by the Guises, one of whom was the Cardinal of Lorraine, and patron of the Jesuits. His persecution of the reformers has been previously mentioned. In assailing the title of Elizabeth, Henry II had undoubtedly several objects in view, the chief of which were to humiliate England and probably establish French sovereignty over it, to continue the policy of Mary in persecuting the Protestants, and to place the crown of Elizabeth upon the head of Mary Queen of Scots. Whether one or all these motives influenced him, he solicited the aid of the Pope and made himself a party to the conspiracy against the peace of England by endeavoring to obtain a papal decree that Elizabeth was a bastard, and therefore not lawfully queen. Consequently, when, after her rejection of Philip's proposal of marriage, she saw the Roman Catholic powers, with the Pope at their head, conspiring against her, she resolved that her own safety and that of England required her to dismiss the Roman Catholic members of her council, declare her purpose to protect and encourage the Reformed religion and submit the matter to the people by means of a parliament to be assembled for that purpose. This precautionary measure was most commendable, inasmuch as it proposed to submit to parliament the question whether or no the two religions were equally entitled to legal protection. In order that her purposes might be fully understood, she issued a proclamation allowing divine service to be performed in the English tongue, and the scriptures to be read by the jay the privilege hitherto denied them, 
In order to allay all into excitement, she expressly prohibited religious controversy by preaching until the meeting of Parliament. When the new Parliament did assemble, it was addressed in her behalf by the Keeper of the Great Seal, who announced to the representatives of the people that the Queen had commanded him to exhort them to take a mean between the two extremes of superstition and irreligion, which might reunite the partisans of both TLW1 and the other religion in the same public worship. 6. Lingard, Vol. B.I., Pages 4. The conciliatory course of Elizabeth, as indicated by her proclamation and this address to Parliament, exhibited a degree of liberality to which the English people had been unaccustomed during the reign of Mary. It is a reasonable supposition that, if her suggestions had been accepted in the spirit in which they were offered, England would have bounded forward far more rapidly than she did to the condition she subsequently reached through severe and protracted trials. The times were suited to the introduction of compromising measures of peaceful policy. The people were tired of commotion, persecution, and bloodshed on account of religious differences, and would readily have acquiesced in any amicable plan of adjustment. But, unfortunately for England, and the world as well, neither the interests nor the wishes of the people were of sufficient avail to bring quiet to the country. The course of subsequent events may be easily traced. The papal machinery of church government had been so constructed at Rome that, in order to keep the people in subjection, it had deposited unlimited powers in the hands of the prelates. The Roman Catholic bishops of England, as well as elsewhere, had been accustomed to rule with a rod of iron, and the time had not arrived when they could be reconciled to any diminution of their ecclesiastical authority. They became alarmed, says Lingard, at the position taken by Elizabeth. They undoubtedly viewed it only in its relation to themselves and the interests of the church at Rome or, rather, of the papacy without bestowing a moment's thought upon the general welfare of England. They regarded conciliation as a form of heresy not to be tolerated. What they desired was the extirpation of Protestantism and the unity of the Roman Church, assured by the establishment of its religion to the exclusion of any dissenting faith. Accordingly, they assembled themselves together to consult whether they could in conscience officiate at the coronation of a queen who proposed so to adjust religious differences as to put an end to all interference with the right of individuals to freedom of conscience. Upon various pretexts they decided not to attend, or to take part in, the ceremony of coronation. Consequently, the ceremony was performed with the attendance of only a single bishop, and was made to conform to all the rites of the Catholic pontifical. This decision and conduct of the bishops created considerable embarrassment, and might have produced serious consequences but for the withdrawal of the single bishop from his associates. History of England By Rappin Vol. VII, pages 217-232 The non-attendance of the Roman Catholic bishops upon the coronation of Elizabeth was a signal for opening the old strife. It was unquestionably intended upon their part to array their followers in opposition to the conciliatory measures of the Queen. And it did not take long, in those days, to be so understood upon both sides. The consequence was that the public excitement was imparted to Parliament, and led to the repeal of several of the statutes of Mary, and the substitution for them of others whereby the Reformed religion was made national, and penalties prescribed for refusing so to recognize it. This of course, led to severe measures and to persecution, in an imitation of the example set during the reign of Mary, and produced the unfortunate condition of affairs with which all readers of English history are familiar. 
upon which side, during the long controversy that followed, the responsibility rested most heavily, is not easily decided. Wrongs were undoubtedly inflicted by both sides. But whatsoever these W.T. air, they grew out of the spirit of that age, and had their origin, as we have seen, in the influences created by the papacy, aided by Jesuit intrigues. The fact, however, which most nearly concerns our present inquiries is what has just been stated, that the first step taken in the direction towards the renewal of religious agitation was the organized opposition of the bishops to Elizabeth, formed for the purpose of defeating the measures of pacification she had proposed to Parliament. It is impossible not to have known that the defeat of those measures by the combined opposition of the bishops would lead to a revival of the hatreds which had been encouraged under Mary, and, therefore, to oppose them was to invite that revival for which, consequently, these bishops were responsible. Whether the Protestants would have accepted or rejected the proposition of Elizabeth cannot now be decided with positive certainty. All the probabilities indicate that they would have accepted them. One thing, however, is certain, they were rejected by the Roman Catholics under the lead of their bishops. This, of course, revived the old animosities, but with increased violence. Throughout all the departments of society passion became greatly intensified. Nevertheless, the questions involved were English questions alone. They were primarily and chiefly political, although having politico-religious aspects. But they involved only the internal and domestic condition of England. No alien or foreign power had the right, by international or other law, or consistently with what is now universal usage among civilized nations, to interfere with them. But we have seen that they were interfered with, not only by a direct attempt to make the policy of the country conform to that dictated by a foreign power, but in the threatening form of a conspiracy between the King of France and the Pope, to impeach the title of Elizabeth upon the ground that she was a bastard, to which she could not have submitted without disgrace. We have also seen how this conspiracy moved stealthily forward, step by step, until she was tried at Rome by an alien tribunal pronounced a usurper by a decree which declared her crown to have been forfeited and her subjects released from their natural and lawful allegiance. And in order that her escape from the wrath and vengeance of the Pope should become impossible, swarms of incendiary Jesuits were turned loose upon the country, to fan the flames of discord, stir up rebellion and civil war, and carry into execution the judgment and sentence of the papal court at Rome. If Elizabeth erred in defending herself and her kingdom against this formidable and dangerous combination, her error was upon the side of patriotism. And she is scarcely censurable for it, inasmuch as the life of the nation, and probably her own life, were the stake for which her enemies were playing. And whether it be true or not, that the Jesuits attempted her assassination as some historians allege it must be accepted in her praise that, although a woman, she taught her assailants that she was every inch a queen, and that England under her reign became enabled to convince all these rival powers that she was competent to conduct her own affairs and take care of herself facts sufficiently demonstrated by her advanced position among the modern progressive nations. 8. Lingard, Vole. V.I., pages 5. Every American mind should be duly impressed by this portion of English history, showing, as it does, how fierce and protracted was the struggle which led, in the end, to popular government, and the civil and religious freedom which it alone has guaranteed. Elizabeth was undoubtedly a great queen great in the qualities of her intellect, in the steadfastness of her purposes, 
in that manly courage which now teth with occasion. When she became queen, the people of England, both Protestants and Roman Catholics, were tired of religious persecution and anxious to put an end to it. She favored and recommended to Parliament measures of pacification in the spirit of liberality and toleration. If, obeying the dictates of her own conscience, she preferred Protestantism to Roman Catholicism, she had such respect for the conscientious convictions of others as to desire that all her subjects should be secured in the right to accept either the one or the other at their own discretion. By the avowal of these and other kindred purposes, she incurred the opposition of the Roman Catholic bishops, who, in concert with foreign powers, and backed by the Pope and his Jesuit militia, brought on a civil war which afflicted England with a long train of evils and calamities. Under the influence of her liberalism, the bulk of the population became tolerant of each other, and, by the great unanimity with which they accepted her as queen, indicated the desire that the protection of the government should be given to both forms of worship. And it may be accepted as a fair inference from what then transpired, that she was defeated in her plan of conciliation only by the animosities engendered by the English bishops, the Pope, and the Jesuits. Her defeat, however, was not final. And having survived the machinations of all her enemies, even the excommunication and anathemas of the Pope, together with the stealthy plottings of the Jesuits, the pages which record the events of her reign constitute some of the brightest in English history. They teach a philosophy that will not be forgotten so long as free popular institutions shall continue to exist. Chapter 9 Jesuit Influence in India the reader who shall intelligently trace the history of the Jesuit through their conspiracies against the peace of Europe, and especially their tireless efforts to eradicate everything that tended to freedom of conscience and the public enlightenment, will not wonder that, during the last century, it became necessary to the interests of society and the Church that one of the foremost of the popes should suppress and entirely abolish the order. Odd as that event was brought about, not alone on account of the odium they incurred by intermingling with the temple affairs of states, but because they pursued practices which shocked the whole Christian world, their society cannot be thoroughly understood without becoming familiar with the history of their missionary enterprises. As they prosecuted these among ignorant and illiterate multitudes of peoples, where no watchful eye could observe them, they have mainly become their own historians. Yet there is enough to be discovered to show that, at every stage of their development, they have been true to the injunction of their founder, to be all things to all men. Loyola considered his society superior to the ancient monastic orders. We have seen that he looked upon the latter as corrupted, and no longer worthy to be entrusted with the work of Christian missions, on which account he claimed for his society superior jurisdiction in the missionary field. There, among populations unable to detect imposture, his followers had their own way, made their own history, and executed their own purposes, without intelligent popular inspection. Consequently, when he realized the odium his society had encountered among European peoples, he considered it necessary to remove this by setting up for it exaggerated claims of merit in the missionary work. By this means he evidently hoped to be able to appeal successfully to the Pope and the Church to protect the Jesuits from the rising indignation of such Christians as had resisted their introduction into France. Hence it became a fixed Jesuit habit, and yet is, to shield the society under pretense that it is a necessary part of the Church machinery, and that the Church cannot exist without it. 
and out of that same necessity must have grown that multitude of miracles, said to have been performed in remote and unfrequented parts of the world, and in the manufacture of which the Jesuits have acquired the reputation of being thorough adepts. It was not a difficult matter in those days to impose upon superstitious people by the claim of miraculous powers. None understood this better than the Jesuits. The first important mission of the Jesuits was to the East Indies, in charge of Francis Xavier, one of the most impressible of Loyola's converts. This mission is of chief importance, inasmuch as it was initiatory, and conspicuously displays the operations of the society whilst under the immediate personal charge of its founder. It indicates the methods of the Jesuit missionary system, and how they were made to conform to the main purpose of acquiring dominion, with but little regard to the means employed. There are very few of the present age who do not regard many of the recorded events as apocryphal notwithstanding, the overcredulous have accepted them as true for many centuries. They are only important now because we learn from them the prominent characteristics of the Jesuits, and the real foundation of the reputation to which they so boastingly lay claim. The Portuguese had, some years before, acquired the occupancy of territory in India, with a commercial capital in an Episcopal Goa. By means of these influences a number of the natives had professed Christianity, and, along with all the Portuguese Christians, paid spiritual allegiance to the Pope. But the condition of society was by no means favorable to the practice of the Christian virtues. On the contrary, it had become greatly demoralized, rivaling Rome and the principal cities of Europe in that respect. In the lives of the saints a work of standard ecclesiastical authority in the Roman Church the author represents revenge, ambition, avarice, usury, and debauchery, as extensively prevailing at Goa. According to him, the Indians who had professed conversion were so influenced by the example of the Portuguese that they had relapsed into their ancient manners and superstitions. Even those who professed to be Christians lived in direct opposition to the gospel which they professed, and by their manners alienated the infidels from the faith. 1. Those familiar with the condition of ecclesiastical affairs in Europe at that time, and especially with the immorality prevailing at Rome, will not be surprised at this description of things at so remote a place as the Portuguese possessions in India. Of course, such tendency to demoralization could not long exist anywhere without producing absolute social degradation. To prevent this, the King of Portugal made an attempt to reform these abuses, influenced probably by the twofold purpose of desiring to spread Christianity and to improve the commercial interests of his subjects. Xavier, therefore, was sent to India under his auspices, and was better fitted for that purpose than Loyola himself would have been, because he was less ambitious, less selfish, and more conscientious. Whilst he possessed some commendable traits of character and wonderful energy, much that has been written about him by papal and Jesuit authors can only be considered as imaginary, and as deserving no permanent place in history. The character assigned to him is perfectly angelic, with scarcely any mixture of humanity. And, like Loyola, he is represented as having performed a vast number of miracles, even to the extent of restoring the dead to life. With regard to these, he is said to have resembled Loyola in another respect in that he, too, performed more miracles than Christ. It is not difficult to perceive the object of all this, when it is considered that the pretenses were set up at a time when an unenlightened public were easily misled by them. They like the innumerable myths of the Middle Ages, 
answered the ends of their inventors, and are no further useful now than as they served to show, not only the character of the society which required them to be accepted as absolutely true, but that of those who invented and employed them to mislead the credulous and unsuspecting multitude. The entire account of Xavier's mission is so mixed up with these idle tales that the time spent in their perusal would be wasted, but for the reason that they bring prominently before us some of the distinguishing characteristics of the Jesuits, under the tuition and during the lives of the founder of their society and his most confidential colleague. One Lives of the Saints By the Reverend Alban Butler Vole XII, Article St. Francis Xavier, December 3rd, pages 608 when he reached Gala, Xavier found the Portuguese Christians in the demoralized condition already mentioned. The Order of Franciscans had there an established monastery, which, as we may suppose, needed to be reformed, inasmuch as they do not seem to have been accepted from other professing Christians in the general charge of immorality. We do not learn from Jesuit authors how far this order was in fact reformed since the eulogists of Xavier consider it to have been his greatest glory that he brought vast multitudes of the natives into the Christian fold, and thereby established Jesuit authority and dominion in India in place of the which the Church, under the patronage of the Pope and by means of the long-established religious orders, had already acquired there. This was manifestly the view which Xavier himself took of his mission, as is plainly shown by his conduct. Instead of cooperating with the established church authorities and with the monks at Goa, he entered upon an independent course of his own, whereby he evidently intended to indicate the superiority of his Jesuit methods. He roamed the streets with a bell in his hand, and when the ringing attracted a crowd of curious lookers-on, he invited them to send their children and slaves to catechism, so as to learn the truths of Christianity from him. When the children gathered around him, prompted alone by curiosity, he taught them the creed and practices of devotion, which, of course, could have been nothing more than the simplest form. After following this method for some time, he engaged in public preaching, and it is gravely said that in half a year he accomplished the reformation of the whole city of Goa, which must have included the native along with the Portuguese population. The whole story is told after the manner of the romance writers. Reflecting people who read of the immense multitudes converted to Christianity under his eloquent preaching, not only at Goa, but in other parts of India, will naturally wonder how all this could have occurred when the natives did not understand his language, nor he theirs. But the Jesuits have no difficulty on that score nor, indeed, on any other when the simple invention of a miracle will serve their purpose. Xavier became as famous as Loyola in this respect. Butler represents him as having baptized 10,000 Indians with his own hand in one month, and sometimes a whole village in a single day, and as having preached to five or 6,000 persons together, but without stating in what language he preached. Seeming, however, to anticipate that there might be some to inquire how much of real Christianity there was in these professed conversions, and how he could have preached with so much effect to those whose language he could not speak and who could not understand his he endeavors to remove the difficulty evidently following the Jesuit story by declaring that, while in India, God first communicated to him the gift of tongues, so that he spoke very well the language of those barbarians without having learned it, and had no need of an interpreter when he instructed them. It is impossible now to decide how this statement originated. Xavier reported only to Loyola not to the Pope or the Church and whatsoever was circulated in Europe to aid the cause of the Jesuits 
and to gain them popularity on account of the success of their missions, was derived from him. But whether it originated with Xavier or Loyola, or was invented after the death of both, neither the repetition of it now, nor its recent appearance in an authoritative ecclesiastical volume, published and extensively circulated in the United States, can relieve it from the suspicion of a fabulous origin. During the brief slay of Xavier at Goa, he availed himself of the opportunity of setting an example which the Jesuits of every subsequent period have been prompt to imitate an example which gives practical interpretation to the Jesuit vow of extreme poverty. The Franciscan monks had erected a seminary, where they taught the native youths at least the rudiments of a Christian education. But Xavier was not satisfied with this, having manifestly conceived the idea, still maintained by the Jesuits, that the cause of education should be entrusted solely to them, on account of their superiority over all others, including every religious order. Influenced presumably by this consideration alone, he conceived a plan of having the Franciscan seminary turned over to him, with the view of converting it into a Jesuit con- Claiming that he was a more immediate and responsible representative of the Church than any of the monastic orders, inasmuch as the brief of the Pope conferred special missionary prerogatives upon him, he succeeded in effecting his purpose by inducing the Franciscans to transfer the building to him. Whereupon the Franciscans were left to engage in such other methods as they could to minister to the Portuguese Christians and convert the natives, whilst Xavier was permitted to establish his Jesuit college so that whatsoever renown should follow the Indian missions might endure to the benefit of the Jesuits, and not to that of the monastic orders. The Jesuits have never since then lost sight of this idea or failed to profit by it, always taking care in making up the history of these missions to place their society in the front and the monastic orders in the background, notwithstanding the latter preceded them in India. They seemed disinclined to allow the least credit to any of the missionary agencies which the Church had been accustomed to employ. 2. History of the Saints By the Rev. Alban Butler, Vol. XII, Article St. Francis Xavier, December 3, pages 610. Having obtained possession of the Franciscan Seminary Agola, Xavier decided that the building should be improved, so as to impress the simple natives with the superiority of the Jesuits over the monks. To an ordinary mind this would appear to be a difficult thing to accomplish, inasmuch as it is not probable that voluntary contributions could have been procured in such a community. But to Xavier it was easy to overcome so trivial a difficulty as this, as it always has been to the Jesuits, without finding the least impediment in the vow of extreme poverty. All he had to do was to employ the Portuguese troops stationed at Goa in pulling down the heathen temples in the neighborhood of Goa, and appropriating their very considerable property, for the use and benefit of the new college. 3. Admirable Strategy The poor natives were powerless to resist the Portuguese troops with arms in their hands, and were compelled to stand by in silence and see their property despoiled without compensation, all under the pretense that the greater glory of God required it, when, in fact, it was prompted by Jesuit ambition. Xavier must have felt gratified at his inexpensive mode of improving his new college, and Loyola undoubtedly rejoiced when the fact was reported to him. The former, therefore, 
having so successfully occupied the missionary field at Goa by this display of Jesuit power to the natives, and by reducing the Franciscan monks to inferiority, hastened to other parts of India, to carry on the work he had begun under such flattering auspices. 3. Griesinger, pages 88-89 to He proceeded to the coast of Malabar, where the missionaries previously sent from Goa, under the authority and within the jurisdiction of that Episcopal See, had baptized a large number of the natives, whom they claimed to have been converted to Christianity under the methods employed by them. But in order to make it appear that these missionaries were inefficient and incompetent, the Jesuits pretend that these professed converts still retained their superstitions and vices, for and that it was absolutely necessary they should be brought under the influence of Xavier. The purpose of this, at that time, was to prove to the Christian world that the Church and the Papacy had failed to accomplish any good missionary results through the agency of the monks, and that the Jesuits were absolutely indispensable. In this way it was hoped, doubtless, to overcome a prejudice existing against the society in Europe. Therefore, Xavier is represented as having saved the Malabar converts from relapsing into heathenism, and increased the number of natives who submitted to baptism. Whilst all this is spoken in his praise, it is quite certain, from the most favorable accounts, that they entertain but little, if any, just conception of the ceremony of baptism, or, indeed, of any of the fundamental principles of Christianity. The first effort of Xavier upon the Malabar coast was at Cape Comorin, in a village full of idolaters, to whom he preached. But as they were unable to understand what he said, they remained unmoved having been probably attracted, like the people of Goa, by his bell ringing in the streets. Why the gift of tongues was then withheld from him is not easy to determine, unless it was that he might be furnished an opportunity of impressing the ignorant natives with sentiments of awe by performing a miracle. At all events, Butler records what happened in these words, a woman who had been three days in the pains of childbirth, without being used by any remedies or prayers of the Brahmins, was immediately delivered, and recovered upon being instructed in the faith, and baptized by St. Francis Xavier, as he himself relates in a letter to St. Ignatius Loyola. How she was instructed in the faith is, of course, not explained, it being left to the imagination of the reader to conceive by what extraordinary process this ignorant woman was instructed in the Christian faith, so that she could be rightfully baptized into the church when she did not understand the language in which she was addressed. If she even realized that her safe delivery and instantaneous restoration were occasioned by his intervention, there was no possible mode of conveying to her mind the idea that it was God's work and not Xavier's, for there was no word in any of the languages of India signifying the deity in the Christian sense. The whole story is not only preposterous, but puerile but it bears the unmistakable stamp of Jesuitism, like others of the same general character. For example, it is seriously recorded by the same author, that after the happening of this event, the chief persons of the country listened to his doctrine, and heartily embraced the faith. He preached to those who had never before heard of Christ, and so great were the multitude which he baptized, that sometimes, by the bare fatigue of administering that sacrament, he was scarcely able to move his arm according to the account which he gave to his brethren in Europe. He healed the sick by baptism, and where his presence was impracticable, he sent a neophyte to touch them with the cross, when, if they signified a desire to be baptized, they were restored to health. In addition, 
It is also said that he brought back to life four persons who were dead during the 15 months he remained upon the Malabar coast. He had preached at Travancore, near Comorin, where he was more favored by having the gift of tongues given to him, so that he could speak in one language as well as another. Thus endowed, as the Jesuits insist, with divine power, he dispersed and drove out of the country a tribe of savages and public robbers slash who were in search of plunder, by approaching them with a crucifix in his hand, although they had never heard of a crucifix before, and had no means of knowing what it signified. When the people of a village near Travancore remained uninfluenced by his preaching an event not at all wonderful considering their utter ignorance of Christianity he is represented as having again resorted to a miracle, which was the never-failing Jesuit resource. He had a grave opened, which contained a body interred the day before, and, after putrefaction had commenced, restored it to life and perfect health. Near the same place he also brought back to life a young man whose corpse he met on the way to the grave. These miracles, says Butler, made so great an impression upon the people that the whole kingdom of Travancore was subjected to Christ in a few months, except the king and some of his courtiers. For Butler, pages 608, 609. 5 Butler, pages 609. Every enlightened mind will reject such tales as pure fictions as absolutely incredible. They trifle with serious things, and their inventors act in imitation of those who make merchandise of human souls. It directly impeaches the wisdom of Providence to pretend that he permitted miracles to be performed in his name even the dead to be raised to life to influence the destiny of an ignorant heathen population utterly unable to appreciate the character and teachings of Christ, whilst, at the same time, he permitted almost every variety of vice and corruption to prevail among the intelligent populations of Europe, and to fester about the very heart of the papacy itself. The accounts of what was done by Xavier in the various parts of India are of the same general character as the foregoing, the chief variations being in the kind of miracles performed by him. To minds capable of subjecting them to the test of reason and common sense, it is impossible to avoid the conclusion that they were either invented by Xavier himself, and sent to Europe to aid Loyola in giving popularity to the Jesuits, or were made up by them after his death for the same purpose. In point of fact, his whole claim to be considered as the Apostle of the Indies rests upon a flimsy and unsubstantial foundation. This is especially so, in view of the fact that the multitudes he pretended to convert were turned into professing Christians by the simple ceremony of baptism. Some of them may possibly have been able to repeat the invocations Our Father and Hail Mary, but without any intelligent conception of the difference between the one omnipotent God of the Christians and the many gods they had been accustomed to worship, or of the meaning of the words uttered to them by Xavier, or of the sacraments he administered, or of any of the attributes of the deity, or of a single essential principle in the Christian creed. Nevertheless, other accounts are added, whereby he is represented as having visited other places upon the Indian coast, where like results are said to have been produced, until, after having remained about seven years in the East Indies, he went to Japan to bring that idolatrous nation under the same influences, leaving the bulk of his Indian converts to succumb to the dominion of the Brahmins, and sink back into heathenism. He did not seem to realize that true conversion to the Christian faith involves the sympathetic emotions of the heart, the intelligent action of the mind, and that without these, no signs, or genuflections, or empty words spoken merely from the lips, can give substantial value to the profession of it.
A knowledge of the manual of arms does not impart to a coward the bravery of a true soldier, nor does the repetition of a few familiar words convert a parrot into an intelligent being. And not a whit more can a heathen, who never heard of Christ, be converted into a Christian by any form of words, or by any bodily gestures, unless his mind has been touched and his heart stirred by some knowledge of what unto God is, and of the wisdom of his providence as displayed in the creation and government of the universe. E. Butler, pages 611. One would suppose that the gift of tongues, when once conferred upon Xavier, remained with him, inasmuch as he could not convey his thoughts to the multitudes of people in any other way. But, strange to say, it was otherwise. This miraculous gift was a mere transient favor, seven conferred only for a season, during his intercourse with some of the heathen populations of India, and withdrawn as miraculously as it had been given. What strange infatuation it must be to accept it is true that, after he had been divinely endowed with the faculty of preaching to the people of India in their own languages, he should have entered upon his mission to Japan without any knowledge whatsoever of the Japanese language. Although that language is one of the most difficult in the world, and wholly unlike any spoken then or now in Europe, yet the fact was of trifling consequence to such a man as the Jesuits represent Xavier to have been. He undertook this mission as if nothing were in the way, relying, as may be inferred from the Jesuit accounts, upon his miraculous powers to convert to Christianity an idolatrous people he had never seen, and of whom the world at that time knew but little. It is solemnly averred that in forty days, he acquired a sufficient knowledge of the Japanese language to translate into it the Apostles' Creed, and an exposition of its meaning by himself. With this he began to preach, and converted a great number. Still the intensity of his zeal made him impatient, and, being unwilling to wait the slow process of appealing to the intelligence of the Japanese people, he resorted again to the familiar expedient of miracles, which had accomplished so much in India. Accordingly, we are told that, by his blessing, the child's body, which was swelled and deformed, was made straight and beautiful. And, by his prayers, a leper was healed, and a pagan young maid of quality, that had been dead a whole day, was raised to life. Eight the Jesuits have never hesitated to assign to Xavier, as they did to Loyola, the performance of some miracle, when anything had to be done that could be accomplished in no other way. The aggregate number of miracles attributed to them exceed all that are recorded in the Gospels. And neither Xavier nor Loyola ever hesitated to avow their authority to perform them, in verification of the Jesuit doctrine that God had transferred his divine attributes to each of them. Butler Pages 614. Such recitals are calculated to tax the patience of enlightened readers of this day. But without them it is not possible to obtain accurate knowledge of the record the Jesuits have made up to inform the world of the glorious achievements of their society, and to keep out of view the enormities for which they have been, in the course of their history, condemned by every Christian nation and people of Europe. They are necessary also to a proper understanding why Xavier was beatified and canonized. For these and other kindred fables were held to be sufficiently attested to cause his name to be enrolled among the saints. The difficulty of conveying to the minds of the Japanese people any proper idea of God, when their language contained no word to express it, has already been suggested with regard to India. He told them, says Butler, that Dios meant God. 
but it is impossible that this or any other single word can so signify the deity as to convey to an ignorant, idolatrous people any just conception of the creator of the world, or of his divine attributes, or of their own responsibilities to him either in life or death. But the wonderful exploits of Xavier were not balked at this or any other point. The gift of tongues had once been given to him, whereby he was enabled to preach to any people without any previous knowledge of their language. This gift, however, as we have seen, was only a transient favor, granted for a season, or some special occasion, and taken away. And, notwithstanding, in consequence of this, it had become necessary that he should learn the Japanese language in forty days, so as to be able to speak and write it, it still became necessary also that he should again have the power conferred upon him to understand and speak all languages. Consequently, we learn from Butler that at Amanguchi God restored to St. Francis the gift of tongues. For he preached often to the Chinese merchants who traded there, in their mother tongue, which he had never learned. 9. To appreciate the character of this statement, it should be borne in mind that, at that time, he had never visited China. And it is proper to observe that, notwithstanding this providential preparation for missionary labors in that country, he never did visit there. 8. Butler Pages 615. He converts serious things into mockery to pretend that God conferred this gift upon Xavier in order to fit him specially for the conversion of the Chinese, and yet that he so disposed his providences with reference to him that he was never able to enter that empire, or to hold direct intercourse with its people. If it had been the divine decree that he should be set apart for this great work by this miraculous preparation, no earthly impediment would have been likely to arrest him or keep him out of China. For God's fixed purposes are not subject to fluctuation to suit the exigencies of human affairs. But, notwithstanding he made several earnest efforts to get there, he signally failed in all of them. He returned from Japan to India, and, after remaining a short time at Goa, resorted to the expedient of attempting an entrance into China by indirection, because the authorities there were inimical to the Portuguese. He conceived the idea of procuring the organization of a diplomatic mission and having himself attached to it, so that, by this means, he could enter the country. This plan having failed, he endeavored to accomplish his object secretly, says Butler, making the effort to be landed somewhere upon the Chinese coast, where no houses were in view. Every step he took, however, proved abortive, and he died before reaching China thus leaving wholly unaccomplished what the Jesuits allege was the foreordained purpose of providence. 9 Butler, pages 616. The death of Xavier occurred in 1552, and his remains were taken to Goa about three months after, when, according to the Jesuit account, his flesh was found ruddy and fresh-colored, like a man who is in sweet repose. When it was cut, the blood ran. And so necessary is it deemed by the Jesuits that his body shall appear to have been absolutely interruptible as an argument to prove that their society is under the special protection and guardianship of God. It is seriously affirmed that the holy corpse exhaled an odor so fragrant and delightful that the most exquisite perfume came nothing near it. When the body reached Malacca, a pestilence then wasting the city, suddenly ceased, the effect alone of its mere presence. It was transported to go entire fresh, and still exhaling a sweet odor and deposited in the church of the Jesuit college he had dexterously obtained from the Franciscan monks. Upon this occasion we are told that several blind persons recovered their sight, 
and others, sick of palsies and other diseases, their health and the use of their limbs. His relics, by order of the King of Portugal, were visited in 1774 192 years after his death when the body was found without the least bad smell, and seemed embroned with a kind of shining brightness, and the face, hands, breast, and feet had not suffered the least alteration or symptom of corruption. 10. In view of the universal experience of mankind and the enlightenment of the present age, it is difficult to treat the foregoing statements seriously, they are so palpably the product of Jesuit imposture. And yet they are published in this country, and recommended as positive truths, by the highest ecclesiastical authority, as if some intelligent providential object would be accomplished by believing them. Notwithstanding, however, that every man of common sense will reject them, they are indispensable to a proper understanding of the methods employed by the Jesuits in setting forth the claims of their society to providential favor. And although the vagaries of the wildest enthusiast are more credible, because they do not sport with sacred things, their recital puts us in possession of some of the means of unraveling the nets this wonderful society has cunningly woven. Butler, pages 620-628. Chapter 10. In Paraguay. The Jesuits had a fairer and better field for the display of their peculiar characteristics, and for the successful establishment of the principles of their constitution, during the existence of the government founded by them in Paraguay, than ever fell to the lot of any other society or select body of men. It is not too late to try them by the results they then achieved, so as to assure ourselves of what might reasonably be expected if the modern nations should so far forget themselves as to allow that sad and disastrous experiment to be repeated. After the Portuguese obtained possession of Brazil, they inaugurated measures necessary to bring the natives under their dominion. The problem was not of easy solution. The Indians had no conception of the principles of international law, which the leading nations had established to justify the subjugation seeth the weak by the strong, and consequently had to be brought by slow degrees under such influences as should persuade them to believe that their conquerors were benefactors, and not enemies. The pretense of title, based upon the grant of the Pope Alexander VI, was not openly avowed. If it had been, the native population, in all probability, would have united in sufficient numbers to drive the invaders into the sea. Pacific means of some sort had to be employed, so as to delude the multitude of natives into a condition of apparent but false security. Spain had also acquired possessions in other parts of South America, and the methods of colonization adopted by the two governments were substantially the same. Charles V of Spain and John III of Portugal were both religious fanatics and although their chief purpose was to obtain wealth from the mines of America, each of them professed to desire, at the same time, the civilization of the natives. Hence, as this could not be accomplished without the influences of Christianity, all the expeditions sent out by them to the New World were accompanied by ecclesiastics, and were therefore under the patronage and auspices of the Church of Rome. The controlling idea of the period was that the Church and the State should remain united, so that wheresoever the latter should obtain temporal and political control, the former should be constantly present to decide and direct everything pertaining to faith and morals. That is, to keep both the state and the people in obedience to the church. With these objects in view, missionaries were sent out by the church with the first Spanish and Portuguese adventurers, and every step was avowedly taken in the name of Christianity. 
So deeply was this sentiment embedded in every mind that the memory of some favorite saint was perpetuated in the names of nearly all the newly established cities. These missionaries were taken mainly from the ancient monastic orders, the Dominicans, Franciscans, etc., and had been regarded by the popes for many years as not only the most faithful, but the most efficient coadjutors of the Church in the work of extending Christianity over the world. We have elsewhere seen that the Jesuits did not sympathize with this belief, and that Loyola had urged upon the Pope the necessity of creating his new society upon the express ground that these ancient orders had become both inefficient and corrupt. When the new world, therefore, was about to be opened before them, the followers of Loyola endeavored to seize the occasion to supplant the monkish orders, if possible, and take into their own hands exclusively the dissemination of Christian influences among the native populations. In this respect the Jesuits displayed more zeal for their own success than for that of the Church, and made the cause of Christianity secondary to their own interests. The history of their missions in South America will abundantly show this, as it will also display their insatiable ambition and unparalleled superciliousness. The first Jesuits were sent to South America by the King of Portugal. They found a large district of country washed by the waters of the Rio de la Plata and its tributaries, which had not been reached by either the Spaniards or the Portuguese, but remained in the exclusive possession of the Indians, who had never felt the influence of European civilization. The natives generally had been treated by the invaders with extreme cruelty, having been often reduced to slavery and forced to submit to a variety of oppressions and indignities. All the resources of the country susceptible of being converted into wealth were seized upon to supply the royal treasuries of the Christian kings who tyrannized over them. The whole history of that period shows that, unless some counteracting influences had been introduced, those who professed to desire the civilization of the natives would, in all probability, have added to the degradation and misery in which they were found when first discovered. The Jesuits desired to apply some directive, and there is no reason why the sincerity of their first missionaries in this respect should be suspected. It cannot be justly charged against them that they were disposed to treat the native populations with cruelty, or to do otherwise than subject them to the influences of the Jesuit system of education and government. Whatsoever faults of management are properly attributable to them, and there are many are easily traceable to that system itself, which, from its very nature, has always been, and must continue to be, inflexible. Inasmuch as blind and unacquiring obedience to the superior is the most prominent and fundamental principle of a society, everything, in either government or religion or morals, must bend to that, or break. There is no halfway ground, no compromise, nothing but obedience. Everything is reduced to a common level, leaving individuals without the least sense of personal responsibility except to those in authority above them. For these reasons, it is necessary to remember, whilst examining the course and influences of the Jesuits in Paraguay, that whatsoever transpired was in obedience to the command of the superior in Rome, who held no personal intercourse with the natives, and whose animating and controlling purpose was to grasp the entire dominion over the new world in his own hands. It was chargeable to the constitution and organization of the society, which, as already explained, so emphatically embodies the principle of absolute monarchism as to place it necessarily in antagonism with every form of liberal and popular government. If the government they established in Paraguay, and maintained for 150 years, had not been monarchical, it could not have had Jesuit paternity or approval. If, 
from any cause, at any period of its existence, it had become otherwise by the introduction of popular features, it would have encountered Jesuit resistance. Monarchism and Jesuitism are twin sisters. Popular liberty and Jesuitism cannot exist in unity. The former may tolerate the latter, but the latter cannot be reconciled without exterminating everything but itself. Whatsoever institutions existed, therefore, in Paraguay whilst the country was under the exclusive dominion of the Jesuits, must be held to have been in precise conformity to the Jesuit constitution, and of such a character as the society would yet establish wheresoever they possess the power either to frame new institutions or to change existing ones. The Jesuit idea of exclusiveness and superiority influenced the conduct of their missionaries in Paraguay as elsewhere. But for this, different results might have ensued. If they had been content to recognize the monastic orders as equally important and meritorious as their own in the field of missionary labor, and the ancient machinery of the church as retaining its capacity for effectiveness in spreading Christianity throughout the world if, in other words, they had been content to recognize any merit as existing elsewhere than among themselves the natives might have been subjected to a very different destiny from that which, in the end, overwhelmed them. But they were not permitted, by the nature and character of their order, to entertain any such feelings, or to cherish any ideas of success other than those which promised to endure to their own advancement. Accordingly we find them as explained by one of their modern defenders of high celebrity basing their claim to exclusive jurisdiction over the natives of Paraguay upon the express ground that the ecclesiastical influences sent out under the auspices of the church and the patronage of the Spanish and Portuguese kings had become injurious rather than beneficial to the natives in consequence of the most flagrant corruption. In explanation of the course pursued by the Jesuit missionaries, he says, one of the first experiences of the missioners was, that it was in vain to hope for any permanent fruit among the Indians, unless they were separated from the evil influences of the Europeans, who swarmed into the new world, carrying with them all the vices of the old, and adding to them the licentiousness and cruelty which the freedom of a new country and the hopes of speedy riches bring with them. This same author also speaks of the hordes of adventurers who flocked over to the new world, the scum of the great cities of Europe in order to show that by intercourse with them the natives knew little more of the Christian name than the vices of those who professed it. Two, to let it be known that lay adventurers are not alone referred to, he mentions expressly the worldly and ambitions ecclesiastics and religious, who are forgetful of the spirit of their calling, or apostates from their rule. Three, he casts a variety of aspersions upon the characters of the bishops of Assumption and of Buenos Aires, and maintains the proposition with earnestness that if the Indians were allowed to have unrestrained intercourse with the Spaniards, they would derive the worst consequences from their bad example, which is entirely opposed to the principles of morality. 4. 1. The suppression of the Society of Jesus in the Portuguese Dominions By the Reverend Alfred Weld, of the Society of Jesus London, 1877 Page 24 LBID, Pages 30 UBID pages 33. LBID, pages 42. In this the Jesuits displayed their wonderful astuteness, and it may be supposed that they employed these and other kindred allegations with effect in Spain, in Asmuc as they succeeded in obtaining from the king a special prohibition for Europeans to set foot in Paraguay, so that they could thereby secure exclusive control of the natives and bring them under Jesuit influences alone, independent of the monastic orders and the ecclesiastical authorities of the church. 
5 This was a great stroke of policy upon their part, because by ignoring the church, its ecclesiastics, and the monastic orders, they were enabled to assume prerogatives of the most extravagant character, and to hold themselves out to the natives as the only Europeans worthy of obedience and the only true representatives of Christian civilization. Not only, therefore, in the manner of securing the royal approval of their exclusive pretensions, but in the character of the government established by them, did they exhibit their chief characteristics of ambition, vanity, and superciliousness characteristics they have never lost. The government established by them in Paraguay was essentially monarchical. It could not have been otherwise under the principles of their constitution. Under the false name of a Christian republic, it was, to all intents and purposes, a theocratic state, so constructed as to free it from all European influences except such as emanated from their superior at Rome. All the intercourse they had with the Church and the Pope was through him, and whatsoever commands he gave were inquiringly obeyed by them, without stopping to investigate or concerning themselves in the least to know whether the Church and the Pope approved or disapproved them. In order to impress the natives with the idea of their independence and of their superiority over the monastic orders and the Church ecclesiastics, they practiced the most artful means to persuade them to hold no intercourse with either Spaniards or Portuguese, upon the ground that they could not do so without encountering the example of their vices and immoralities. The unsuspecting Indians were easily seduced by acts of kindness, and the result was that, in the course of a brief period, they succeeded in establishing a number of what were called reductions or, more properly speaking, villages with multitudes of Indians assembled about them. The whole aggregating, in the end, several hundred thousand. These constituted the Jesuit state, and were all, by the mere ceremony of baptism, brought under Jesuit dominion. At each reduction the natives were allowed to select a secular magistracy, with limited and unimportant powers over such temporal affairs as could be entrusted to them without impairing the theocratic feature of the government. But in order to provide against the possibility of permitting even these few temporal affairs from being conducted independently of them, they adopted the precaution of providing that, before any important decisions were carried into effect, they should obtain their sanction as spiritual shepherds. There never was anywhere a more thorough and complete blending of church and state together. 5. The Suppression of Tree Society of Jesus Who the Portuguese Dominions By the Eve Alfred Weld of the Society of Jesus London, 1877 Page 42 Although this new state was established under the pretense that it was necessary to protect the natives against the bad influences of the Spaniards and the Portuguese, the approval of it by the King of Spain, Philip III, was obtained by the promise that every adult must pay him the tribute of one dollar a consideration of chief importance with him. Philip IV was equally disposed to favor the Jesuits, presumably for the want of proper information for it would have required but little investigation at that time to have discovered that the only motive of the Jesuits for securing royal approbation in Europe was that they might ultimately acquire power to plot against European royalty itself when it should stand in the way of their ambition. To show how little obedience was paid to the public authorities of either Spain or Portugal, it is only necessary to observe that each reduction was governed by a Jesuit father, supported by a vicar and a curate as assistants but whose chief duty was espionage. This governing father was under the orders of a superior, who presided over a diocese of five or six parishes, the supervision and management of the whole being lodged in the hands of a provincial, 
who received his orders direct from the general in home. 6. If, therefore, the kings of Spain and Portugal supposed that the Jesuits in Portugal intended to pay fidelity to them, or to either of them, they were deceived as, in the course of events, they discovered. They obeyed their general in Rome, and him alone. The praise ought not to be withheld from the Jesuits, that the natives who were thus brought under their influences were better and more kindly treated than those who were compelled to submit to the dominion of Spaniards and Portuguese beyond the limits of Paraguay. They partook of their labors, of their amusements, of their joys, of their sorrows. They visited daily every house in which lay a sick person, whom they served as the kindest nurse, and to whom they seemed to be ministering genii. By these and other kindnesses they brought the Indians to look upon them with a feeling bordering upon idolatry. But whilst they were friends, they were also sovereigns, and governed with absolute and unquestioned authority. 7. This was a necessary and indispensable part of their system of government, which embodied the Jesuit idea of a Christian republic. It was in everything pertaining to the management of public affairs an absolute monarchy, with all its powers centered in the general at Rome whose authority was accepted as equal to that of God, and to whose command obedience was exacted from all. Apart from this governing authority, universal equality prevailed. The principles of socialism or communism very much as now understood governed all the reductions. Six History of the Jesuits By Greisinger Page 140 Nicolini, Pages 302 Everything necessary to the material comfort and prosperity of the Indians was in common. Each family had a portion of land set apart for cultivation. They also learned trades, and many of them, both men and women, became experts. But the earnings of the whole were deposited in common storehouses at each reduction, and distributed by the Jesuits in such portions to each individual as necessity required. Even meat was portioned from the public slaughterhouses in the same way. The surplus produce remaining after these distributions was sent to Europe, and sold or exchanged for wares and merchandise, solely at the discretion of the Jesuits. Everything was conducted in obedience to them, and nothing contrary to their orders was tolerated. Rigid rules of conduct and hours of labor were prescribed, and the violators of them were subject to corporal punishment. Houses of worship, colleges, and palatial residences for the Jesuit fathers were built by the common labor and at the expense of the common treasury. Suffrage was universal. But the sanction of the Jesuits was necessary to the validity of the election. In fact, says Nicolini, the Jesuits substituted themselves for the state or community in a fact which fully establishes the monarchical and theocratic character of the government. In order to teach the confiding Indians that obedience to authority was their chiefest duty, they were subjected to rules of conduct and intercourse which were enforced with the strictest severity. They were watched in everything, the searching eyes of the Jesuits being continually upon them. They constituted, in fact, a state of society reaching the Jesuit ideal completely. That is, docile, tractable, submissive, obedient, without the least real semblance of manhood. Having thus completed their subjugation, energetic measures were adopted to render any change in their condition impossible. For this purpose care was taken to exclude all other than Jesuit influences, and to sow the seeds of disaffection towards everything European, the object being to surround them with a high wall of ignorance and superstition, which no European influences could overleap, and within which their authority would be unbounded. 
they were instructed that the Spaniards and the Portuguese were their enemies, that the ecclesiastics and monkish missionaries sent over by the church were unworthy of obedience or imitation, and that the only true religion was that which emanated from their society and had their approval. If these simple-minded people were taught anything about the church, it was with a view of convincing them that the Jesuits represented all its power, authority, and virtue, and that whatsoever did not conform to their teachings was sinful and heretical. If they were told anything about the Pope, it was to represent him as inferior to their general, who is to be regarded by them as the only infallible representative of God upon earth. That all other ideas should be excluded from their minds, they were not permitted to hold any intercourse whatsoever with Europeans. For fear, undoubtedly, they might hear that there was a church at Rome, and a Pope higher than their general. They were not allowed to speak any language but their own so as to render it impossible to acquire any ideas or opinions except such as could be expressed by means of its limited number of inexpressive words. That is, to keep them entirely and exclusively under Jesuit influences. To sum up the whole, without further detail, the Indians were regarded as minors under guardianship, and in this condition they remained for 150 years, without the possibility of social and national development. They were saved, it is true from the miseries of Portuguese slavery, but keep in such a condition of inferiority and vassalage as unfitted them for independent citizenship. Their limbs were unchained. But their minds were cabend, cribbed, confined, within bounds too narrow for matured thought, sentiment, or reason. 8 Nicolini, pages 303-304 It would not be fair to say that the first Jesuit missionaries to Paraguay may not have been animated by the desire to improve the condition of the Indians, or to withhold from them the meat of praise justly due for the humanity of their motives. It is undoubtedly true, as already intimated, that they did shield them from many of the cruelties to which they had been subjected under the Spanish and the Portuguese adventurers, who overran large portions of South America through the search after wealth. But it cannot be too indelibly impressed upon our minds, in this age, that they acted in strict obedience to the Jesuit system, which permitted no departure from absolute monarchism, and censored all the duties of citizenship in obedience to themselves as the sole representatives of the only authority that was or could be legitimate. And not only did their strict adherence to their system make it necessary for them to hold the Indians in subjugation and treat them as inferior subjects, but it involved them, at last, in collisions with the Spaniards and Portuguese and obliged them to treat the latter especially as enemies, and to impress this fact upon the minds of the whole Indian population. The consequence of this was to create an independent and rebellious government within the Portuguese dominions, which necessarily brought the Jesuits in conflict with the legitimate authority of the Portuguese government. The Jesuits foresaw this, and prepared for it. It is a fair inference from all the contemporaneous facts that they desired it. At all events they subjected the Indians at the reductions to military training and discipline, so as to be prepared for such emergencies as might arise out of their relations with both the Spaniards and the Portuguese. One would suppose that in a government so far separated from the rest of the world, and governed by those who profess to be laboring alone for the greater glory of God, the arts of peace would be chiefly, if not exclusively, cultivated. But the successors of the first Jesuit missionaries thought otherwise. Consequently, 
Besides refusing to allow the Indians any intercourse with the Europeans, they would not permit them even to leave the reductions without permission, or to receive any impressions except those emanating from themselves, or to do anything not dictated by them. The result was what they designed, that the Indians came to look upon all Europeans, whether ecclesiastic or lay, as enemies, and the Jesuit as their only friends. They readily engaged, therefore, in the manufacture of arms and ammunition, and submitted to military discipline until they became a formidable army, subject, of course, to the command of their Jesuit superiors. The sequel of Jesuit history proves that in all this they were unconsciously creating an antagonism which, in the end, overwhelmed them. A violent feud sprang up between the Jesuits and the Franciscan monks, which undoubtedly arose out of the claim of superiority and exclusiveness set up and persisted in by the former. It may well be inferred that the Jesuits were chiefly to blame for this feud, for the reason that the Franciscans retained the confidence of the church authorities, and the Jesuits did not. At all events, however, they were in open enmity with each other, and prosecuted their controversy with an exceeding degree of bitterness upon both sides. A distinguished citizen of the United States, who represented this country as minister to Paraguay, alluding to this fact, says, the Franciscan priests in the capital regarded them the Jesuits with envy, suspicion, and jealousy. These last fomented the animosity of the people against them, so that government, priests, and people regarded with favor, rather than otherwise, the destruction of the missions, and the expulsion of their founders. Nine notwithstanding these hostile relations, however, between the Jesuits and the Franciscans, and the disturbed condition of affairs existing between the former and the Portuguese authorities, neither the Pope nor the King of Spain withdrew their patronage entirely from the Jesuits for some years, and not until it was made manifest that they had become an independent power, which might if not checked, result in complications injurious alike to the church and the state. But the time arrived, after a while, when it became necessary to impose severe restraints upon their ambition, and to teach them that neither the powers of church nor state were concentrated in their hands. They were required to learn what they had seemed not before to have been conscious of that the authority they exercised in Paraguay was usurped, and that if they desired to continue there as a society, they must submit to be held in proper subordination. Being unable or unwilling to realize this, they invited results which they manifestly had not anticipated. Ninth History of Paraguay By Washburn Vol. I. Pages 87 When the protracted controversy between Spain and Portugal about the boundaries of their respective possessions in South America reached an adjustment, it furnished an occasion for testing the obedience of the Jesuits to royal authority. The two governments, after the usual delay in such matters, came to an amicable understanding and arranged the boundaries to their mutual satisfaction. It placed a portion of the Jesuit missions under the jurisdiction of the Portuguese, which they had supposed to belong to Spain. The Jesuits refused to submit to this and inaugurated the necessary measures to resist it, being determined, if they could prevent it, not to submit to the dominion of Portugal. Their preference for Spain was because of the fact that the king of that country was more favorably inclined to them than the Portuguese king. But the history of the controversy justifies the belief that they would not even have submitted to the former unresistingly, inasmuch as it had undoubtedly become their fixed purpose to retain the independence they had long labored to establish, by maintaining their theocratic form of government. 
They had been so accustomed to autocratic rule over the natives that they could not become reconciled to the idea of surrendering it to any earthly power. In this instance, however, they encountered an adversary of whose courage and capacity they had not the least conception, and whom they found, in a brief period, capable of inflicting a death blow upon the society. This was Sebastian Cavalho, Marquis of Pombal, who was the chief counselor of the Portuguese king. Cavalho, better known as Pombal and the King of Portugal, were both faithful members of the Roman Church, and conducted the government in obedience to its requirements. But neither of them was disposed to submit to the dictation of the Jesuits of Paraguay with regard to the question of boundary which was entirely political or submit to their rebellion against legitimate authority. Such a question did not admit of compromise or equivocation. It presented a vital issue they could neither avoid nor postpone, without endangering the government and forfeiting their own self-respect. Consequently, they inaugurated prompt and energetic measures to suppress the threatened insurrection of the Jesuits before it should be permitted to ripen into open and armed resistance. From that time forward the controversy constantly increased in violence. The intense hatred of Pombal by the Jesuits has colored their opinions to such an extent that they deny to him either talents or merit, and, inasmuch as they charge all the ensuing results to him, he is pictured by them more as a monster of iniquity than as a statesman of acknowledged ability. All this, however, should count for nothing in deciding the real merits of the controversy. The whole matter is resolved into the simple proposition that it was the duty of the government to vindicate and maintain its own authority in the face of Jesuit opposition. It had nothing to do with the church, nor the church with it. It did not involve any question of faith, but was confined solely and entirely to secular and temporal affairs. And if, under these circumstances, Pombal had quietly permitted the Jesuits to defy the government and consummate their object by successful rebellion against its authority, he would have won from Jesuit pens the brightest and most glowing praise, but his name would have gone unto history as the betrayer of his country. With the foregoing facts impressed upon his mind, the reader will be prepared to appreciate the subsequent events which fed to the expulsion of the Jesuits from all the Roman Catholic nations of Europe, and finally to the suppression and abolition of the society, as the only means of defense against its exactions and enormities. Chapter Zai The Portuguese and the Jesuits At the period referred to in the last chapter the Jesuits were held in low esteem everywhere in Europe. They were severely censured, not alone by government authorities, but by the great body of the Christian people, more especially those who desired to save the Roman Church from their dangerous and baneful influences. The leading Roman Catholic governments were all incensed against them, and it only required some master spirit, some man of courage and ability, to excite universal indignation against them. Protestants had comparatively little to do with the matter nothing, indeed, but to make public sentiment somewhat more distinct and emphatic. Pombal understood thoroughly the character of the adversary he was about to encounter the adroit artifices which the Jesuits, collectively and individually, were accustomed to practice, and by which they had often succeeded in obtaining assistance from unexpected quarters. Therefore he resolved at the outset not to temporize with them, but to put in operation immediately a series of measures of the most active and energetic character. He may not have known that the other Roman Catholic governments would unite with that of Portugal, but he must have seen ground for believing that they would, in the general displeasure they exhibited at the conduct of the Jesuits throughout Europe, 
Howsoever this may have been, he saw plainly his own line of duty toward the Portuguese government, and had not only the necessary courage, but the ability to pursue it. A royal council was held at the palace of the King of Portugal in 1757, at which he suggested the imperative necessity of removing the Jesuits from their posts of confessors to the royal family, for the reason that the controversy in South America could not be satisfactorily settled, if at all, as so long as they remained in a condition to influence the action and opinions of the king in any degree whatsoever. One he knew perfectly well how ingeniously they had wormed themselves into the confidence of kings, so that by becoming their confessors they should not only obtain the knowledge of the secrets of state, but so to influence the policy and action of government as to promote their own interests. And like a sagacious and skillful statesman, as he undoubtedly was, he saw at a glance how necessary it was that they should not be permitted to have further access to the king. The Jesuits represent the king as having been unwilling to assent to this proposition. But that is not of the least consequence, because, as they admit, he signed the decree which excluded all Jesuits from their office of confessors of the court. To this was a terrible blow to them perhaps the first of a serious character they had ever encountered. It was made the more serious by the fact that Portugal was recognized as a thoroughly religious country, and sincerely devoted to the Church of Rome. Whatsoever may have been its immediate effect upon the Jesuits, it left no ground for retreat or equivocation upon either side, but placed the contestants in direct and open hostility, each with drawn swords. From that time forward the conflict, on the part of the Jesuits, was one of life or death, and they fought it with a desperation born of that belief. To justify itself, and to explain to the European nations the reasons which influenced it, the Portuguese government caused to be prepared a statement of grievances, wherein the course of the Jesuits in the Spanish and Portuguese dominions of the New World, and of the war which they had carried on against the armies of the two crowns, were set forth. It is insinuated that Pombo was the author of this pamphlet, but no evidence of that has been produced. It does not matter whether he was or not, inasmuch as it amounted to such an arraignment of the Jesuits as gave tone to the public sentiment of Europe, and influenced the course of all the governments toward the society. Viewed in this light, it becomes of the utmost importance, inasmuch as we may rightfully regard as true, even without special investigation, whatsoever influences the action of governments and communities, and cannot safely accept in opposition to it what interested parties such as the Jesuits were may assert to the contrary. The substance of this statement is contained in the work of Wilde, one of the most earnest of the Jesuit defenders. It is in the nature of an indictment against the Jesuits, preferred by one of the leading Roman Catholic governments of Europe, and on that account is both important and instructive. Abuse and vituperation in the use of which the Jesuits are trained as experts are no answer to it. 1 Weld, pages 94. 2 Ibid. After alleging that the power of the Jesuits had so increased as to render it evident that there must be war between them and the government in Paraguay, it proceeds to affirm that they were laboring sedulously to undermine the good understanding existing between the governments of Portugal and Spain and that the machinations were carried on from the plaza to the Rio Grande. It then embodies in a few expressive words, as given by the Jesuit Weld, these serious charges. That they had under them 31 great populations, producing immense riches to the society, while the people themselves were kept in the most miserable slavery. That no Spaniard or Portuguese, were he even governor or bishop, 
was ever admitted into the reductions. That, with strange deceit, the Spanish language was absolutely forbidden. That the Indians were trained to an unlimited, blind obedience, kept in the most extraordinary ignorance slash and the most unsufferable slavery ever known, and under a complete despotism as to body and soul. That they did not know there was any other sovereign in the world than the fathers, and knew nothing of the king, or any other law than the will of the holy fathers. That the Indians were taught that white laymen adored gold, had a devil in their bodies, were the enemies of the Indians, and of the images which they adored. That they would destroy their altars, and offer sacrifices of their women and infants. And they were consequently taught to kill white men wherever they could find them, and to be careful to cut off their heads, lest they should come to life again. 8. One would scarcely suppose that, after this terrible arraignment of the Jesuits in Paraguay, there could be any other counts added to the indictment. But in order to aggravate these offenses and to explain their disloyalty to the government as we learn from the same Jesuit authority they were also charged with opposing and resisting the treaty of boundary between Spain and Portugal, with carrying on a war against the two governments, fortifying and defending the passes leading to the reductions with artillery, inciting the Indians to revolt, and with exhibiting an obstinate resistance to royal authority. There has never been, in the civilized world, such an enumeration of serious offenses charged against any body of men by so high and responsible authority as that of one of the leading governments, as Portugal was. The modern reader cannot avoid the expression of surprise when he realizes that they were made by those who faithfully adhered to the Church of Rome, and against a society which professed to have been organized to promote the greater glory of God, for the express reason that no existing order sufficiently did so. It is scarcely possible that such accusations as these would have been made without some justifying cause. If they were even exaggerated, the government of Portugal must have obtained information from responsible sources sufficiently reliable to authorize a searching investigation. That, undoubtedly, was the object of Pombal and the king, not merely in explanation of their own official conduct, but to bring the conduct and attitude of the Jesuits to the notice of other governments. Whatsoever the direct object they had in view, the charges thus formally made by them against the Jesuits led to a fierce and angry controversy. The Jesuits defended themselves with their accustomed violence, and it has required many pages to convey to the world the character of the maledictions visited by them upon the name and memory of Pumble. To us of the present time these amount to very little, inasmuch as they are almost entirely supported by ex part statements of those implicated by the government and which are entitled to no weight whatsoever against the general verdict ultimately rendered by the European nations, in obedience to public opinion. We cannot accept the Jesuit theory that these nations were all misled by false accusations, or that the subsequent suppression of the society was the consequence of undue popular prejudices. It is not difficult to deceive individuals, but governments and communities are not apt to fall into serious errors. The collective judgments of whole populations are seldom wrong. Weld, pages 96 to 97. Ebed. It was natural that the Christians of Europe should become, not only interested, but in some degree excited, when they came to know the character of the charges made against the Jesuits by the authority of the Portuguese government. Many of them desired to look favorably upon the order on account of the relations they supposed it to bear to the church. The Roman ecclesiastics were divided, some attacking and others defending it.
it became necessary, therefore, that the matter should be brought to the attention of the Pope, in order that the final judgment should be pronounced by him, inasmuch as they were considered a religious order, and, consequently, within the proper jurisdiction of the Church. With this view, Pombo, in behalf of the government of Portugal, forwarded an official dispatch to Rome, whereby the Pope was informed of the causes of complaint against them. The Jesuits say this dispatch is filled with libels, but this is to be attributed chiefly to their hatred of Pombo, to whom they, of course, assigned the authorship. Nevertheless, it emanated from so responsible a quarter that the Pope felt himself obliged to give it due consideration. He owed it to Portugal, no less than to the Church, to cause a searching investigation to be made, so that it might be ascertained whether the charges against the Jesuits were true or false. This could not have been avoided, even if he had desired it, and there is no evidence that he did. Benedict XIV was at that time Pope, and his secretary of briefs was Cardinal Passiani, who had the reputation of being a man of integrity and ability. The initiatory steps had, consequently, to be taken by them. The Pope, however, was in infirm health, and the Jesuits insist that his sympathies were with them. This may probably have been so. But if it were, it furnishes no argument in their favor, because there was yet no evidence before him upon which any decision could have been based. The question he had then to decide was not whether they were innocent or guilty, but whether his duty did not require of him to take the necessary steps to ascertain what the truth really was. The charges were too serious to be passed over without this, and whatsoever the fact may have been with regard to his sympathies, Benedict XIV felt himself constrained to order, and did order, on investigation to be made. His brief to that effect was dated April 1, 1758, and addressed to Cardinal Saldanha by Passiani, as the Pope's secretary, and commanded that the charges made by the Portuguese government should be thoroughly investigated, and the facts laid before him for his pontifical guidance. This was the inauguration of a regular trial before a tribunal of acknowledged jurisdiction, and probably had the effect of suspending, in some degree, the public judgment to await his final decision. The Jesuits could not rightfully have objected to this course. And if it be true, as they insist, that the Pope sympathized with them, they doubtless congratulated themselves upon his favorable inclination towards them. Whatsoever may have occurred afterwards, the investigation undoubtedly had an impartial beginning. On this account, the inquirer who desires to understand the history and character of the Jesuits will be interested in its important details. Cardinal Saldanha was appointed visitor and reformer of the society, with full power to reform whatsoever abuses should be found to exist, and if, after investigation, any grave matters were discovered, he was required to report them to the Pope, who would then decide what subsequent steps were to be taken. Five the proceedings up to that point were therefore judiciously conducted. The death of Benedict XIV, however, within about a month after the date of this brief, passed it over to Clement XII, his immediate successor. The Jesuits strive hard to show that although the Pope referred in his brief to the reform of abuses, he did not intend thereby to signify that he had then decided that reforms were necessary. If they be allowed the benefit of this argument, it does not avail them against the fact that Cardinal Saldana, after investigation, made a report in which the fathers of the society in Portugal, and its dominions at the end of the earth, are declared on the fullest information, 
guilty of every crime of worldly traffic that could disgrace the ecclesiastical state. 6. Whilst the special accusation here made had reference to the commercial traffic by which, in express violation of the rules of the society, the Jesuits had accumulated immense wealth in all parts of the world, and in direct violation of their vow of extreme poverty, Pombal considered himself justified, with the assent of the king, in requiring of the Cardinal Patriarch of Lisbon the issuance of an official order to suspend from the sacred ministry, or preaching adhering confessions all the religious of the Society of Jesus. In the Patriarchate of Lisbon, an order to that effect was accordingly issued by the Patriarch, which made the issue more serious and complicated than ever. For it was a direct and practical procedure which everybody could understand. In their own defense, the Jesuits urged that the Patriarch was intimidated by parable, and that, in consequence, he died of remorse within a month, odd confessed his error upon his deathbed. Such defenses as this are of no weight as arguments, in the face of actual and known occurrences, and especially when it is well known that the Jesuits are in the habit of resorting so frequently to deathbed repentances, obtained in private by themselves, as to excite general suspicion against them. Even, however, if their statement in this case is accepted as true, the order of the Patriarch was carried into effect by the government of Portugal, odd proved, in the end, to be the most fatal blow ever aimed at the society before that time. The proceedings were not arrested by the death of the Patriarch, for the vacancy made by it was immediately filled by the appointment of Cardinal Saldanha as his successor, which the Jesuits were compelled to construe as a censure of their society, inasmuch as he had already, in his report, charged them with crimes disgraceful to the ecclesiastical state. As this appointment was made by the Pope, it is at least to be inferred that he, up to this point, regarded the investigation as fairly and impartially made. After his appointment as Patriarch, Cardinal Saldanha banished the Father Superior of the Jesuit professed house, and caused such measures to be taken as resulted in the arrest of two Jesuits in Brazil, who were sent to Portugal and imprisoned. He appointed the Bishop of Para, in Brazil, as his ecclesiastical delegate to act in his name in South America. It would be impracticable to trace here all the events which followed. Nor is it necessary, inasmuch as it is of far more importance to know the results than the series of details that led to them. The first important result that occurred in South America, under the ecclesiastical administration of the Bishop of Para, was the issuance by him of a decree whereby he suspended all Jesuits in his diocese from the functions of the confessional in the pulpit. 7. He then continued to investigate the conduct of the Jesuits, and found that the ecclesiastics were divided with reference to them some accusing and others defending them. Among those who opposed them were the Bishop of Lima and the Bishop of San Sebastian, and these two prelates of the church had been violently denounced by the Jesuits on that account. This, however, is a fixed habit with them. They denounce all who oppose them, and bestow fulsome praises upon all their defenders. By this indiscriminate method they impair confidence in themselves, and make it difficult to decide how much of what they say shall be accepted and how much rejected. The safer plan is to follow the course of public events, giving but little heed to the vituperation with which Jesuit works abound. 6. Weld, pages 131-132 to 6. Slash RF, pages 138 
There can be no doubt of the fact that Benedict XIV had authorized the cardinal visitor appointed by him to apply all the measures necessary to reform the Jesuits, if, after investigation, he found any to be required. Thus the visitor was empowered to act for the Church and the Pope. And, hence, the Jesuit resistance to his degrees was disobedience and insubordination. When Clement XII became Pope, he found just this condition of things existing, which not only increased his responsibilities, but added greatly to his embarrassment. The Jesuits say that Cardinal Passionion justly impressed his mind with the idea that Benedict XIV had already decided that the reform of their society was necessary, and that whatsoever he did under the influence of this false impression should not be considered to their prejudice. This is barely possible. But whether he did or not is immaterial, since Clement XII could not, under any circumstances, have found himself justified in either abandoning or suspending the investigation which Benedict XIV had ordered. Nor could he have changed its course at any time after he reached the pontificate the interests at stake were too important, and the welfare of the Church was too deeply involved. At all events, the investigation was continued under Clement XIII. And when the Jesuits realized that he could not be persuaded to abandon it, they endeavored to shift the issue by insisting that the hostility exhibited towards them had not arisen out of any of the things charged by the government of Portugal, but had been created by the opposition of the Jansenists and heretics to them on account of their orthodox adherence to the Church of Rome. In this they exhibited their usual sagacity and cunning, evidently believing that it was the only means left them to bring over the body of the Roman Christians the Pope and all to their side. It did, probably, tend somewhat to that, but fell far short of what they must have expected from it. For the further the investigation proceeded, the more unpopular their society became, not only on account of the proceedings in Paraguay, but because of their interference with all the governments of Europe. We see this in the measures adopted in those governments, and in the unanimity of the public sentiment which sustained them. The belief cannot be indulged for a moment that these governments and peoples faithful and devoted as they always had been to the Church of Rome were influenced by prejudices alone, and acted without some strong, controlling, and justifiable cause. It is worthy of repetition that governments and communities do not thus act. And we shall soon see that there have been scarcely any other events in history so ratified by public approval as the expulsion of the Jesuits from the leading nations of Europe and their final suppression and abolition by the Pope. The evidence upon these subjects is so complete and overwhelming that it cannot be set aside by volumes of eloquent denunciation, or weakened by Jesuitical sophistry. Weld, pages 148. Whilst it is not proper to exclude from our consideration all that the Jesuit writers have said with reference to the period and controversy here referred to, it should be accepted with a great many grains of allowance. Their warmth and vehemence excite suspicion, indicating more of passion than comports with the quiet composure of innocence. They are not willing that the least credit shall be given to anything against them, and demand that whatsoever is said in their behalf shall be accepted as indisputably true. It is not difficult to see, however, that much of the matter offered by them as historic truth does not reach the dignity of impartial evidence, and ought not to be given any serious weight when in conflict with allegations proceeding from reputable and responsible sources. Within a recent period an elaborate defense of the society has been made by one of its leading and most learned members, and sent forth to the world as a conclusive and unanswerable vindication. 
It is contained in the volume so frequently referred to in this chapter, and alleged to be mainly founded upon what writers of the society have said. He supports his defense of this method of making history by introducing the statements of anonymous authors which bear upon their face presumptive evidence that they were manufactured for the purpose by interested parties. He does not, of course, rely exclusively upon them, but, with true Jesuit ingenuity, has so interwoven these irresponsible statements with less suspicious authorities as to give coloring and credibility to the whole. He says, the details have been filled chiefly in from three well-known contemporary works, the names of the authors of which have not reached us such a course indicates the partisan rather than the impartial chronicler of events, and an absence of the candor with which so important a discussion should be conducted. Anonymous statements should not be entirely discredited, because they may be true. But in searching after the truth of history they should avail nothing unless consistent with the general course of events, and then only because of the consistency. One illustration must serve. It is argued that Benedict XIV sympathized with the Jesuits, and was favorable to them at the time he appointed Salbenha as visitor with authority to investigate and reform, and yet the same Pope was constrained by their persistent disobedience to declare them contumacious, crafty, and reprobate men. 9. 8. Weld. Introduction, PP's XXXIX. One reason why the papal authorities found so much difficulty in prosecuting the investigation of Jesuit affairs was the impenetrable mystery which hung over the conduct of the society for more than 200 years. By means of the secrecy and the concealment of the principles of their constitution, they were so enabled to compact their organization as to present a solid front to the world with all its energies devoted alone to its own success. It was only when the Constitution became known that governments and society could defend against their machinations, which, as we have seen, were sufficiently well planned to defy even the Pope and the Church functionaries appointed by him to inspect their conduct. Their persistency in refusing to expose to the public the principles of their Constitution indicated, in the public judgment, that they feared a knowledge of them would add to the public indignation at their presumptuousness and vanity. And so decided was this refusal that it required the authority of the French Parliament, the highest judicial authority in that country, to drag the Constitution from its hiding place. One of their members had engaged in a mercantile adventure until he became bankrupt. Professing to have no property off his own out of which his debts could be collected, his creditors brought suit against the society, insisting that as the property it possessed was held in common for the benefit of all the members, it should be made liable for the debts of each. This having been resisted by the society, the Parliament, in order to reach a correct decision, compelled the surrender of the Constitution. It was then decided that the defense set-up could not be maintained, whereupon judgment was rendered against the society, and the debt was paid. After this time when the principles of the Constitution became known the odium in which the Jesuits were held rapidly increased among both Roman Catholics and Protestants, but more particularly among the former, on account of their unremitting efforts to defeat and embarrass the investigation ordered by the Pope. Unsophisticated minds, accustomed to respect the Church and obey its authority, could not understand why so many impediments should be thrown in the way of the Pope in his efforts to discover the truth, if the society were, as it pretended to be, entirely faultless in its conduct. Even the authority of the Church was comparatively powerless to resist and overcome their obstinacy, as we shall have many occasions to observe in the course of our inquiries.
9 Nicolini, pages 128. Chapter XII. Idolatrous usages introduced. It must not be supposed that the only grounds of complaint against the Jesuits were those already enumerated. Wheresoever they were sent among heathen and unchristianized peoples, they gave trouble to the church, and inflicted serious injury upon the cause of Christianity. When they found a missionary field occupied by any of the monastic orders, they endeavored either to remove them, or to destroy their influence by assailing their Christian integrity, so that they could have everything their own way. They accustomed themselves to obtain their ends by whatsoever means they found necessary, considering the latter as justified by the former. Not in Paraguay alone, but wheresoever else they obtained them in over ignorant and credulous populations, it was mainly accomplished by persuading them to believe that conversion to Christianity consisted in a mere recital of formal words the professed converts did not understand, and in the ceremony of baptism without any intelligent conception of its character or of the example and teachings of Christ. The seeds of error they thus succeeded in scattering broadcast among the natives of India, China, and elsewhere, have grown into such poisonous fruits that all the intervening years have failed to provide an antidote, and it remains a lamentable fact that the descendants of these same professing converts have relapsed into idolatry, and continued to shun Christianity as if all its influences were pestilential. They became Brahmins in India, and, by practicing the idolatrous rites and ceremonies of that country, brought the cause of Christianity into degradation. Continuing steadily to follow the advice of Loyola, they everywhere became all things to all men, by worshipping at the shrines of the lowest forms of heathen superstition as if they were the holy altars of the church. And when rebuked for this by the highest authorities of the church, they justified themselves upon the ground that any form of vice, deception, and immorality became legitimated by Christianity when practiced in its In China they engaged with the natives in worshipping Confucius instead of Christ, and made offerings upon his altar without the slightest twinge of conscience. They omitted nothing, howsoever degrading which they found necessary to successfully planting the Jesuit scepter among the oriental populations, until at last, after a long and hard struggle, they were brought into partial obedience by the church, whose authority they had defied, and whose precepts they contemptuously violated. Whatsoever may be said or thought of the various religions which have prevailed throughout the world, there is one thing about which there can be no misunderstanding. That is, that the Brahmanism of India and the Christianity of Christ cannot be united together harmoniously. There are many reasons for this, apparent to every intelligent mind, but a few only are sufficient for present purposes. It has always been the central idea of the former that Brahma should be worshipped through a multitude of divinities, representing each passion and emotion of the mind, and that his wrath shall be appeased by sacrificial offerings, that of human beings, in order to reach total annihilation as the highest and most perfect state of beatitude after death. Whereas the central idea of Christianity is that worship is due only to one God, the author of all being and the sovereign of the universe, so that when man shall reach the last of earth, his spirit shall enter upon immortality. Brahmanism held India for centuries in degrading bondage, and Christianity was designed to lift mankind to a higher plane of being. This belief was universal among all Christians, 
howsoever they may have differed in forms of faith and modes of worship. And none were louder in its profession than the Jesuits, who pretended that they alone were worthy to occupy the missionary field, and were specially and divinely set apart to spread the gospel among all heathen peoples. In carrying on their work, however, in India, they violated their solemn vow of fidelity to the church by casting aside every pretense of Christianity, and openly, but with simulated professions of Christian zeal, adopting the idolatrous practices common to the natives. They shamelessly cast aside the profession of Christianity as if it were a thing of reproach, and performed with alacrity the most revolting Hindu rites, seemingly as regardless of the obligation of obedience to the church as of their own dignity and manliness of character. They substituted fraud, deceit, and hypocrisy for that open, frank, and courageous course of conduct which a sense of right never fails to suggest to ingenuous minds. They unchristianized themselves by becoming Brahmins and pariahs, crawling stealthily and insidiously into the highest places, and sinking with equal ease and skill into the lowest and most degrading. Even in this enlightened and investigating age, many intelligent people will wonder whether or no these things are possibly true, inasmuch as they shock so seriously every sense of personal honor and religious duty. But the verifications of them are sufficiently abundant to remove all possible doubt, furnished, as they are, not alone by the authors of general history, but by those friendly to the Jesuits, and usually prompt to apologize for them. One of the most conspicuous of the Jesuit missionaries to India, after Xavier, was Nobili, who reached Madura about the beginning of the 17th century. It is pretended that his predecessors had been unable to convert any of the Brahmins, inasmuch as they had labored exclusively with the pariahs, who, besides being shunned and despised by the Brahmins, had paid no heed whatsoever to their Christian admonitions. Nobili, therefore, taxed his ingenuity to discover some practical method of removing this difficulty. He had before him numerous examples of those who had spread the cause of Christianity by openly professing and courageously vindicating it. There was something inspiring in the thought that in its past successes Christianity had required no disguises, but had achieved its victories over paganism in the field of open and manly controversy. To a devout and Christian mind there was no ground of compromise between Brahmanism and Christianity. One or the other hand to yield they could not unite. Nobili knew this, and but for his Jesuit training would scarcely have departed from the plain line of Christian duty. With his mind, however, disciplined by the belief that it was his duty to be all things to all men, he imitated the example of Muhammad, who went to the mountain when it would not come to him by casting aside his character of Christian and becoming a Brahmin himself. He assumed the character and position of a sannyasi. That is, the highest caste among the Hindus. What that word means is not very plain, but the Jesuits insist that those Brahmins who bore it had given some indications of penitence, and that the object of Nobili was to insinuate himself into their favor, secretly and by false pretenses, and thus bring them over to Christianity. There is much reason for believing that this was an afterthought, set up as a defense when the flagrant and unchristian conduct of the Jesuits excited general distrust among the Christians of Europe. But if it expressed the real motive existing at the time, it was then, as always, wholly without justification or excuse a plain and manifest breach of Christian obligation and duty. He could not become a sannyasi without denying that he either was or had ever been a Christian, and without solemnly affirming that he was a native Hindu, 
and not a European the latter, known by the hated name of Faringese, being held in special and universal contempt by all the natives, and especially by the Brahmins. All these things, of course, involve false professions and oaths without number. And, more than that, such stifling of the conscience as to leave it incapable of distinguishing between truth and falsehood, or between fair and false dealing. It was all done, says the Jesuit historian Dorgak, with the approval of his superiors and of the Archbishop of Cranganur. That is, it had full Jesuit endorsement. And as if it were possible to find merit in such profanation of what all Christians consider sacred, by departing from the rules of Christian life, this same authority informs his readers how Nobili appeared as a Jesuit Brahmin, after he discarded all the distinguishing marks and characteristics of Christianity, and presented himself in the capacity of a full-fledged native Hadu. He assumed, says he, the costume of the penitent Brahmins, adopted their exterior rule of life, and spoke the mysterious language. He shaved his head, wore the Brahmin dress, including earrings reaching down his neck. And to complete the illusion that is, the deception and false pretense he represents him as having marked his forehead with a yellow paste, made from the wood of sandanima practice peculiar to the Hindu Brahmins. Thus metamorphosed he passed for a perfect sannyasi, and the Brahmins themselves, wondering at such a rival, sought his presence and questioned him as to himself, his country, and his family. His disguise, however, perfect as it was, did not cause him to forget that he was still in fact a Jesuit, and he, obedient to his training, carried his impostures and falsehoods far enough to make his deception complete and effectual. Consequently, his oath obtained for him admission among the most learned and holy Brahmins of the East. They named him Tatu of Podagar Sanami a master in the 96 qualities of the truly wise. And thus, by means of the most unblushing hypocrisy and false oaths, Nubili denied his religion, his name, his country, and the God whom he had professed to worship, and became a Hindu sannyasi, all for the greater glory of God one. Numerous other Jesuits imitated this example of Nubili, and became both Brahmins and Brahmins. Some of them were specially trained and tutored for the purpose, under the elastic system of Jesuit education, each one, of course, having been carefully instructed in the best and safest modes of practicing deception, of violating oaths, and of making the best means contribute to the end designed to be accomplished. It is claimed for them, apologetically, that they thus became enabled to convert many hundred thousand Indians, both Brahmins and Pariahs, to the cause of Christianity. No intelligent mind, however, can be misled by such a pretense as this, for if even that number of the natives were brought under their influence, they could not have risen higher than the low standard fixed by the lives of their Jesuit instructors. But this story cannot be accepted as true, coming as it does only from the active agents in this vast system of fraud and falsehood. It is far more likely to have been only one more untruth added to the multitude which these Jesuit impostors were in the habit of repeating daily. Besides, if any such conversions to Christianity had occurred, the impostors of the Jesuits would have been discovered, and the whole of them driven from the country. The Jesuits then in India admit enough themselves to assure us of this. One of them said, Our whole attention is given to concealing from the people that we are what they call Faringese. The slightest suspicion of this on their part would oppose an insurmountable obstacle to the propagation of a faith, the plain and obvious import of which is, 
that honesty and fair dealing would have weakened the cause of Christianity, whereas its strength was increased and maintained by false pretenses, false swearing, and the false profession of devotion to the Brahminical religion. Another one of them said, the missionaries are not known to be Europeans. If they were believed to be so, they would be forced to abandon the country, for they could gain absolutely no fruit whatever. The conversion of the Hindus is nearly impossible to evangelical laborers from Europe, I mean impossible to those who pass for Europeans, even though they wrought miracles. Torignac, Vol. I, pages 303. At another place he represents that it would have been the absolute ruin of Christianity if the Jesuits had been known as Faringis or Europeans. That is, that in order to advance Christianity, it was necessary to deny it, even under oath, and to profess that the idolatry of the Hindus was the true worship of God too. The pretense of the Jesuits, therefore, that immense numbers of converts to Christianity were made by them, must have been entitled to no higher credit than their other professions. At all events, the acknowledged authors of a system of falsehoods and deceptions are not entitled to our confidence. It is possible, however, that they may have succeeded in baptizing in secret a few of the natives, and that some Brahmins were among them. But if they did, it is quite certain that the ceremony must have been administered by stealth, and generally so that those who were baptized had no distinct knowledge of what it meant, and may not even have known the time of its administration. At no point in the Jesuit missionary system has more harm been done to the cause of true Christianity than at this. Millions of ignorant and deluded people have been persuaded to believe that Christianity consisted in nothing else but the mere ceremony of baptism, without any intelligent conception of God. Xavier commenced a system in India, and these Jesuit Brahmins, who followed nobly, were his imitators. Taking all the accounts together, the number of converts in India was simply enormous, and yet in 1776, after the Jesuits had left there, a very small percentage of their estimated numbers were found. Three but these exaggerations are more excusable than the methods adopted to impose baptism upon unsuspecting and simple-minded multitudes. The German Steinmetz, alluding to this, says, they insinuate themselves as physicians into the houses of the Indians. Draw a wet cloth over the head and forehead of the sick person, even when at the point of death. Mutter privately to themselves the baptism service and think they have made one Christian more, who is immediately added to the list. The Jesuit de Burgess is represented by him as saying, when the children are in danger of death, our practice is to baptize them without asking the permission of their parents, which would certainly be refused. The catechists and the private Christians are well acquainted with the formula of baptism, and they confer it on these dying children, under the pretext of giving them medicine. That is, by that kind of pious fraud which, according to the Jesuits, promotes the greater glory of God. Another Jesuit father, whose experience in India enabled him to speak advisedly, mentions one woman, whose knowledge of the pulse and of the symptoms of approaching death was so unerring, that of more than 10,000 children whom she had herself baptized, not more than to escape death. The number of such baptisms during the famine in 1737 are alleged by still another Jesuit to have been upwards of 12,000. And he supplements this statement by saying that it was rare, in any place where there were neophytes, for a single heathen child to die unbaptized. Looking over this whole field of Jesuit operations, and contemplating the demoralizing influences of the Jesuits in India, 
This same German historian feels himself warranted in saying that every Jesuit who entered within these unholy bounds, bid adieu to principle and truth all became perjured imposters, and the lies of all ever afterwards were but one long, persevering, toilsome. It would be a fruitless task to summarize the pretexts invented by the Jesuits to convince ignorant and superstitious people that God not only approved, but directly sanctioned, the frauds and perjuries they practiced in his name and that he had specially and divinely set them apart distinct from any other body of people in the world to demonstrate how the greater glory of God could be promoted by such iniquities. If the line could be accurately drawn between their good and evil deeds, it would be most instructive to observe how enormously the latter exceed the former. There was no trouble whatsoever for a Jesuit sannyasi to assume the character of a Christian and an idolatrous Hindu almost at the same instant of time, in which dual capacity he could perform miracles, like those of Xavier, with the ease and skill of a modern prestidigitator. They even held the wildest animals at bay by the odor of sanctity which encircled them. One of them states that, when traveling at night with his companions, a large tiger was discovered approaching them, when, by simply crying out, Sancta Maria, the ferocious animal became terrified and moved away, showing, by the grinding of his teeth, how sorry he was to let such a fine prey escape. Another, to show how providence overshadowed and shielded the Jesuits, said that when heathens and Christians happen to be together, the tigers devour the former without doing any harm to the faithful these last finding armor of proof in the sign of the cross, and in the holy name of Jesus and Mary. Six such superstitious tales as these are told, and many pretended miracles added to them with a seeming unconsciousness upon the part of those who relate them, that the world has reached a period when the truth can be discovered, even through all the disguises which falsehood and deception may throw around it. To Steinmetz, Vol. Ill, pages 474. Citing the Jesuit Fathers de Burgess and Martin. 3 Ibid, pages 489. Steinmetz, Vol. Ill, pages 490, and Note 1 where these authorities are cited. 5 Ibid, pages 491. To those who have not investigated the history of the Jesuits, as written by themselves, these accusations may seem harsh and unmerited. Not so, however, to those who have. No matter where they went, the obligation of being the all things to all men was held to be obligatory upon every member of the society. Obedience to the superior was the highest virtue notwithstanding it may have involved violations of the laws of God, of morality, and of society. How else could professed Christians pretend to be engaged in the practice of virtue by denying Christ, disavowing his worship, and habitually practicing the debasing rites of the Hindu religion, for more than a century, as nobly and his Jesuit followers and imitators did? And what other possible pretext can be offered for the Jesuit worship of Confucius in China? in religious confraternity with the natives, who made their public ceremonies and festivities special testimonials of their adoration of him as the founder of their national religion and the chief among the gods of their idolatry. We shall see how these things were by the proceedings which led to their condemnation by the popes, although the Jesuit historians, who are forced to acknowledge them, try hard to show that the pontifical censure was not deserved. Steinmetz, Vol. Ill. Pages 467. Or the list of the Jesuit defenders referring to the course of nobility and others who practiced idolatrous rites, says, 
some Europeans had been scandalized by this method of appearing all things to all men, in order to win all to Christ the sentence is misleading in this, that instead of there being merely some, who felt scandalized, there were multitudes throughout Europe. The ecclesiastical authorities at Goa, in India, were also of this number. And when the complaint reached there that Nobili had become a Brahmin, and given himself up to idolatry and superstition, he was summoned to Goa to explain his conduct. He could not disobey the summons, and when he reached there, the sight of his singular costume elicited a general expression of indignation among the Christians. When required to explain, by the Archbishop of Goa, as the official representative of the church appointed by the Pope for that purpose the only defense he could make was that his motives were good. That is, that the prostitution of himself and his sacred calling was well meant because his object was to promote the greater glory of God. The Jesuits at Goa accepted his reasons as sufficient, says Dalrignac. There are two methods of accounting for this, first, they were Jesuits. And second, because Nobili's method of falsehood and deception opened to them new and extensive fields of operation, which, if recognized, they could occupy with great success in extending the power of their society. But the Archbishop thought otherwise, and absolutely refused to accept Nobili's reasons as satisfactory. Accordingly speaking for the Church and the Pope, as he was authorized and empowered to do he condemned the conduct of Nobili and the reasons he assigned. Nobili asserted that the truths of the Gospel could not have been introduced into Madura by any other means. But the Archbishop refused to accept this excuse, evidently regarding it as a debasing doctrine, aimed at the very foundation of Christianity. Neither would yield. Nobili, backed by the Jesuits, insisted that he was under no obligation to obey the Archbishop, although he acted under the special authority of the Church and the Pope. And the result was that the matter had to be sent to Rome and the decision of the Pope awaited. In the meantime Nobili returned to Madura, where he continued his idolatrous practices, notwithstanding the censure of the Archbishop of Goa was resting upon him, and he was thereby placed in the attitude of disobedience to the legitimate authority of the Church. 7. Jesuit ingenuity was not sufficient to limit the scope of the inquiry thus brought before the Pope and the Papal Curia at Rome, because of the increasing indignation against the society. Added to the complaints of the Portuguese authorities regarding their conduct in Paraguay, and that of Nobili at Madura, their idolatrous worship of Confucius in China came generally to be known about this time. Consequently, the investigation which it became necessary for the Pope to make, had not only increased in importance, but became broader almost every day. Not only were the matters involved important to the Church, but to the cause of Christianity throughout the world. For it was easy to foresee the injurious and demoralizing result if the Jesuits were permitted to mingle Christian and idolatrous worship together, so as to make it appear to every heathen people within the limits of their missions that Christianity sanctions both forms of worship in the same degree. Consequently, it became necessary for the Pope to examine and decide both questions at the same time. That is, whether the Church could rightfully tolerate either the adoption and practice of the Hindu rites by the Jesuits in India, or their participation in the idolatrous worship of Confucius in China. Torignac, Vol. I, pages 336-367 Among the notable events connected with the latter was the arrival in China of some Dominican and Franciscan missionaries and their surprise at discovering the idolatrous practices of the Jesuits. 
having never suspected even the possibility of the teachings of the church being so tortured as to furnish apology for idolatry, they considered the conduct of the Jesuits a real scandal, which deserved to be rebuked. What seemed to them as especially censurable was the fact that the Jesuits had taught their neophytes to use the Chinese term King Tian to express the idea of God not as the creator of the universe, but as the presiding deity over a multitude of other deities, each having a separate sphere of sovereignty. To them it was not easy to conceive of anything more likely to undermine Christianity, because by limiting or lessening in any way the sovereign attributes of God, the whole Christian system would topple and fall. They, accordingly, notified the apostolic vicar in China, as the immediate representative of the church there, of this unscrupulous and unchristian conduct of the Jesuits, in order, if possible, to apply the proper corrective and remove the scandal from the church. The vicar did not have much to do to discover that the accusations of the monks against the Jesuits were true. And when this became known to him, he not only condemned their idolatry, but severely censured them for practicing it. The Jesuits, by way of defense, attempted to explain why they had applied an idolatrous Chinese term to the God of the Christians, and in doing so exhibited their accustomed sophistry in which they have always been adepts in such a way as to convince the vicar, as well as the Dominican and Franciscan monks, of their entire want of sincerity and kinder, to say nothing of their loss of Christian integrity. They intended that the honors paid to Confucius were merely civil ceremonies, with which the Christians did not associate any religious ideas whatever, and that the word King Tian, in the Chinese language, simply conveyed the idea of God as understood by Christians. This, they said, they were informed by the Chinese mandarins and learned men. Hence, they argued that unless the idolatrous worship they had adopted were allowed to prevail, it would be impossible to obtain sufficient influence over the Chinese to draw them to Christianity the precise meaning of which was, that unless they were permitted to practice the idolatrous rites of heathenism, the Chinese could never be induced to become Christians. This argument was thoroughly Jesuitical, and failed to mislead either the vicar apostolic or the Dominican and Franciscan monks, all of whom could see through the thin disguise with which the Jesuits attempted to conceal their ultimate purpose of bringing the church authorities with the Pope at their head, in obedience to them. It did not require any Chinese learning for them to understand that it was impossible, in the nature of things, for the Chinese to have introduced into their language any word, or even any set of words, expressive of the idea of God as Christians understood it. They were familiar with the universal rule that the language of every people is constructed solely to express their own ideas, sentiments, and thoughts and not such as prevail among those with whom they hold no intercourse. Kinder and fair dealing with the church and the cause of Christianity, therefore, required them to recognize the facts that the Chinese word King Tian conveyed only the idolatrous idea of the superior godship of Confucius, and that it was so used in all the civic and other ceremonies of the Chinese. The result consequently was, that the vicar united with the monks in repudiating the position and doctrine of the Jesuits, and vigorously condemned and censured them for bringing the established worship of the church into disrepute. This decision alone made by the regularly constituted authorities of the church constitutes the most important and pregnant fact, which should not be overlooked by those who desire to understand the history of the most wonderful society the world has ever known. This decision undoubtedly conformed to the opinion of the Pope and of all the church authorities throughout Europe, outside the circle of Jesuits, 
when announced by the apostolic vicar, with the approval of the monks, it should have put a stop to all further idolatrous proceedings on the part of the Jesuits. Any other body of men who acknowledged the jurisdiction of the church would either have obeyed it by entirely abandoning the condemned practices at once, or, at all events, would have ceased to follow them until the prohibition was removed by the Pope, whose superior jurisdiction could not be denied without rebellion against the Church. But the Jesuits did not belong to an order accustomed to submission to any other authority than that of their superior, whom each of them had solemnly sworn to recognize as equal to God, and to obey accordingly. They acquiesced in the decisions of the popes when they conformed with their own opinions and purposes. When they did not, they employed all their combined ingenuity and cunning to evade them. Consequently, they disobeyed the vicar, spurned the counsel of the monks, and persisted in continuing their idolatrous practices, under the pretense that they were awaiting the decision of the Pope. 8. The popes were compelled to deal slowly and cautiously with such questions on account of the difficulty of access to such remote countries as India and China, and the unavoidable delays in transmitting intelligence between them and Rome. Precautionary measures were adopted by sending special prelates of the Church, chosen by the Pope for that purpose, not only with directions to investigate and report the facts, but with authority to establish temporary regulations which should become operative while waiting the Pope's approval, and final when that was given. One of these prelates was a Spanish-Dominican, named Morales, who was sent to China in 1633 by Pope Urban VIII. This was twelve years after the matter had been submitted to Paul V., and was rendered necessary by the fact that it had remained undecided during the pontificate of Gregory XV. When Morales reached China, he entered upon the necessary examination with sufficient care to become convinced of the unchristian conduct of the Jesuits, and, accordingly, condemned their ceremonies as idolatrous. This incensed the Chinese authorities who are supposed to have been influenced to this by the Jesuits and the Dominicans and the Franciscans were driven from the country leaving the Jesuits alone to follow their idolatrous practices without the interference of the monks or of Morales, who, being a Dominican, was included among those expelled. Morales had then spent twelve years in China, and all that time was laboring with the Jesuits to induce them to give up their participation in the worship of Confucius. But his efforts were wholly unavailing. They had brought themselves into favor at the court of the Chinese emperor, and were unwilling to surrender the advantages thus obtained, preferring them to the service of the Church. There was, therefore, no other course left to Morales, after his expulsion from China, but to proceed to Rome and report to the Pope, who was then innocent and this he did in 1645, when he fully laid before the Pope what he had observed in China, making known, of course, the fact that he had been banished on account of his fidelity to the trust assigned him. It wasn't possible for the Pope to abandon the matter at this point, and he accordingly submitted to the Congregation of the Propaganda, to be decided for his information and guidance, these two questions, is it permissible to prostrate oneself before the idol Chachikim T? Is it permissible to sacrifice to Cumcucum? That is, Confucius? By these questions the Jesuit methods of procedure in China were brought directly before this established tribunal of the Church at Rome so that the decision of them by the Pope was unavoidable. What that decision was, is shown by the following statement made under the immediate auspices of Archbishop Hughes, of New York, in the Lives and Times of Roman Pontiffs, by De Monter, on the reply of the Congregation, 
the Pope issued a decree forbidding missionaries of any order or institute to do either of those things, until the Holy See gave a contrary order. 9. Thus, whatsoever other popes may have done or omitted to do, Innocent X solemnly decreed that the Jesuit practices were wrong and would be no longer tolerated by the Church. He had not then learned what became perfectly apparent to many of his successors that the Jesuits W.R. era is familiar with the various methods of brushing papal decrees out of their way as they were with the thoughts and hypocrisies by which they duped and misled the heathen at the expense of the Christian cause. 8. Dalrygnac, pages 53. There seems to have been some unnecessary delay, and possibly some undue prevarication, in the manner in which the popes disposed of these troublesome matters. De Monta represents that several of the popes who succeeded Innocent X permitted the Jesuits to continue their idolatrous ceremonies. To wit, Alexander VII, Clement IX, Clement X, Innocent XI, Alexander VIII, and Innocent XII. This general statement, however, is misleading, and calculated to do injustice to these popes, unless taken in connection with the fact that none of them went further than to say that the Jesuits might unite with the Chinese in their civil ceremonies, when they were, in no sense, religious. None of them undertook to decide whether the sacrifice to Confucius did or did not involve religious worship. For that was the question directly submitted to them, and with regard to which the utmost pains were taken to procure accurate and reliable evidence. But it is undoubtedly true that the Jesuits misconstrued what had been done by these six popes, and perverted their meaning to suit themselves by continuing their idolatrous practices with increased impunity. And they did this to such an extent, and so openly, that in 1693, Magret, apostolic vicar, doctor of the Sorbonne, and bishop of Cumin, was constrained, as the representative of the church, to forbid the idolatrous ceremonies of the Jesuits by a special prohibitory decree. The date of this decree is important, inasmuch as it shows how many years it took and how hard it was to bring the Jesuits into subordination to the Church. In other words, how little they cared for the Church, or the Popes, or Vicars Apostolic, or the ancient monkish orders, when either of them alone, or all combined, ventured to place the least impediment in their path. The question with regard to the idolatrous practices of Nobili arose first in 1618 and was submitted to Paul V in 1621. Hence, up to the time of his official decree of condemnation by Magret, as vicar apostolic, 72 years nearly three-quarters of a century had elapsed, during all which time the Jesuits had enjoyed an uninterrupted triumph over the Church, the Popes, and Christianity. Nine Lives and Times of the Yeoman Pontiffs By De Monter American Edition Volt 2 Pages 191. This condition of things made it absolutely necessary that the severe and protracted strain upon the authority of the Church should, in some way, be brought to an end, and that the stigma the Jesuits had inflicted upon Christianity should be removed. Consequently, Pope Clement Xi, after eight more years of delay, appointed a new vicar apostolic and legate in the person of the distinguished Cardinal de Ternan in order to ensure a complete and thorough investigation of the conduct of the Jesuits in India and China. He was empowered to represent fully the authority of the Church and to act in the place of the Pope. De Ternan answered upon his mission with zeal, and having, after investigation, found all the accusations against the Jesuits completely verified, issued a decree, in June, 1704, 
whereby he condemned in the strongest and most explicit terms the Chinese and Malabar rites practiced by the Jesuits. This decree is given by Nicolini, and a perusal of it will show the degraded state into which the Jesuits had brought the professedly Christian worship even to the adoption of the superstitious and immoral customs of the idolaters. Ten up till this time the Jesuits had enjoyed nearly a hundred years of impunity, and as the church had been unable, during this long period, to impose upon them any restraint they had not contrived the means to defy, their idolatrous worship and demoralizing doctrines could no longer be tolerated without incalculable harm. Therefore, the severe measures adopted by the Turnin, by the express authority of Clement Zai, were fully justified. The Jesuits again evidenced their perverse and stubborn nature by impudently appealing from the decree the Pope had authorized the Turnin to make in his name, to the Pope himself, manifestly hoping either to bring him over to their side, or to procrastinate his final decision indefinitely. They repeated their favorite argument, that Christianity could not be propagated in India and China without making the worship of idols part of its religious ceremonies. They also impeached the character of the evidence upon which the Turnin had relied, by insisting that it was obtained from those who did not understand the people of India or China, or their languages. In all this they persisted in assuming that, in order to convert a heathen people, Christianity must be first converted into heathenism, that it may furnish a starting point for obtaining ultimate dominion over them. This meant that heathens must be converted to Christianity by the Jesuits alone, inasmuch as none others besides them had endeavored to engraft upon Christian faith and worship any idolatrous ceremonies, or the duty and necessity of falsehood and hypocrisy, as means to an end. But the Pope was not misled by this demoralizing subterfuge, and, after hearing them fully and giving all proper consideration to what they said, he brushed it all aside by giving his express and unreserved approval to the decree published by the Turnin as his legate. De Monter admits this. But there is abundant evidence of it apart from this admission. In his life of Clement Zai he says, 10 Nicolini, pages 114. But Clement, having examined the affair in 1710 and 1712, confirmed all the decrees that had been made against the ceremonies, as well as the edicts of Cardinal de Ternan. And on the 19th of March, 1715, by the Constitution ex Iliadi found in full. Ex of the Blarium Romanian, he more vigorously condemned those rites. And he established the form of the oath which thenceforth was to be taken by every missionary in the Indies, promising that observance in their own names, and in the names of their order, no language could be plainer or more emphatic than that here employed by the Pope. It was not uttered in a mere brief, which the Jesuits insist may be changed to answer any subsequent emergency, but in a formal pontifical bull, issued ex cathedra, and which, if the Popes were all infallible, must be accepted as of divine authority. But whether called by one or the other of these names, it was the solemn official act of a Pope the head of the Church and as such, according to the teachings of the Church was final and binding upon all who professed fidelity to it. And it would have been so regarded by any of the ancient monastic orders, and by all who had respect for the authority of the Church. But the Jesuits did not represent either of these classes. And as the power of the Pope was not sufficient to change their course, or unsettle them in their purposes, they continued to persevere in their disobedience, with an utter disregard of consequences. They went to the extent of persuading the Emperor of China to order the arrest of the Turnin, 
which was done by the Bishop of Macau who was one of the tools who caused him to be loaded with chains and thrown into prison, where, from ill treatment, he died. 12. De Monter, Vol. I.I., pages 192. 12. Michelini, pages 126 to 127. These incidents, so unfavorable to the peace of the Church, threw the questions into abeyance again during the succeeding pontificate of Innocent XII, after which it assumed such magnitude and importance that Benedict XII was compelled to deal with it both energetically and sternly. This he did by further confirming the decree of Cardinal de Ternan, and the bull of Clement Xi, reasserting the unchristian practices and conduct of the Jesuits. But even this did not overcome their obduracy. And the next pope, Clement XII, was compelled to issue still another bull, confirming those of Benedict XII and Clement XI. 13. The world has never furnished another instance of such flagrant and persistent disobedience as this. Even another pope, Benedict XIV, found it absolutely necessary to issue two additional bulls of censure and condemnation against the Jesuits, in both of which the decree of Deternan was approved by words of express reaffirmance. He intended and expected to settle the matter finally, and terminate the long-continued disregard of the church authority by the Jesuits. Nevertheless, like his predecessors for many years, he was compelled to realize that he was dealing with an adversary whose ambition was insatiable, and whose capacity for intrigue was without limitation and as untiring as the wind. De Monter tells the result, but omits any comment upon the triumph of the Jesuits over all the popes who passed censure upon them and sought to impose restraints upon their conduct. He speaks of the discord between the other missionaries and the Jesuits, the former reproaching the latter with not fully and frankly observing the bull, and makes the discomfiture of the popes palpable by adding, these disputes lasted till the dissolution of the society. 14. This is equivalent to saying that the only way to bring them into obedience to the church was to dissolve them. We shall hereafter see, however, that they did not even obey the act of dissolution. 13. De Monter, Vol. I.I., pages 192. Uibid, pages 278. As the society was originally established by Paul III in 1540, and was abolished by Clement XIV in 1773, it thus appears that considerably more than one-half the period of its existence had been spent in open and flagrant resistance to the authority of the popes and the church a pregnant fact, which no sophistry can palliate or explain. But as our inquiries proceed, there will be other years of resistance to add to these, along with such combinations of circumstances as show how the society became odious to the Christian world, and how rightfully it was dissolved. Chapter XIII Papal Suppression of the Society When Clement XII became Pope, in 1758, events which had grown out of the conduct of the Jesuits were hurrying forward so rapidly that even he, with all the existing pontifical power in his hands, was unable to arrest them, although, as the patron of the society, he endeavored to do so. There was no longer any ground for compromise. Their persistent disobedience of royal authority and interference with political affairs had made it necessary for the governments to decide whether they should further submit to them or vindicate their own authority by whatsoever steps were required. In Portugal the culminating point was reached by an attempt to assassinate the king. The actual perpetrators were arrested, tried, and executed. But in the course of the investigation it was developed 
to the satisfaction of the public authorities that the deed had been incited by the Jesuits, who had impressed ignorant and fanatical minds with the idea that no wrong was committed by killing a heretical king. That is, one who did not submit to their dictation. An effort was made to place three Jesuit fathers upon trial, so that, if found guilty, they might also be properly punished. But these fathers were bold enough to defy the government by insisting that, as priests, they were not amenable to the civil laws of the state, even for felonious acts, but could only be tried by an ecclesiastic tribunal under the jurisdiction of the Pope. The king and Pommel could easily see that this defiance of government authority over the temporal affairs of the kingdom could not be submitted to without bringing the state into disgrace and endangering its existence. Hence, as a measure absolutely essential to the life of the nation, the king issued a decree of banishment against the Jesuits as traitors, rebels, enemies to, and aggressors on, his person, his states, and the public peace and the general good of the people. All the Jesuits were then seized, transported to the states of the church under the jurisdiction of Clement XII, and the three accused fathers were placed in prison to await his action. The Pope defended the Jesuits, and threatened the King of Portugal with his vengeance if he did not revoke his decree against them. But the king could not submit to interference with the temporal affairs of his kingdom even by the Pope, who, by his approval of the Jesuits, had shown himself willing to see the governments humiliated by them. He, accordingly, withdrew the Portuguese ambassador from the court of Rome, and proceeded against the three Jesuits, who had remained in prison under suspicion of having planned the attack upon his life. The chief one of these was turned over to the Dominicans the natural enemies of the Jesuits by whom he was burned alive, and the other two were condemned to imprisonment for life. 2. The people of Europe became greatly agitated at finding in their midst so formidable an enemy to the public peace and quiet as the Jesuits. This agitation was increased by the trial of the Society for the Dead of Lavalette before the Parliament of Paris, which resulted, as already stated, in bringing to the light the odious principles of the Jesuit constitution, the exposure of which is represented as having produced alarm and consternation among all classes of society. In France the Jesuits made an effort to arrest the public indignation by procuring a decree from fifty bishops, who, under the auspices of the nuncio of Clement XII, certified that the principles of the constitution were harmless. But this adroit movement failed to produce the desired effect. The Parliament, under the lead of Choiseul, the Prime Minister of Louis XV, refused to permit an edict of that effect to be registered. Whereupon, the investigation into the Constitution and statutes of the Society was continued for some months, and resulted in the enactment of a parliamentary decree which shows the odium then attached to the Society in France. It denounced their doctrines and practices are as perverse, destructive of every principle of religion, and even of probity as injurious to Christian morality, pernicious to civil society, seditious, dangerous to the rights of the nation, the nature of the royal power, and the safety of the persons of sovereigns. As fit to excite the greatest troubles in states, to form and maintain the most profound corruption in the hearts of men. It would be impossible to find language more expressive. And when it is considered that it was uttered by a parliamentary body composed only of those who maintain the faith of the Church of Rome, it may readily be supposed that the most imminent necessity called it forth. And it will excite no surprise that the same decree proceeded to provide that the institutions of the Jesuits should forever cease to exist throughout the whole extent of the kingdom, 
and that it also prohibited them from teaching in the schools, from longer recognizing the authority of their general, and from wearing a religious dress. One History of the Popes of Rome by Corminin Vol. I.I. Pages 392 Ebed Clement XII, feeling himself powerful enough to resist this decree, endeavored, as the friend of the Jesuits, to break its force by issuing a counter-decree of his own. At this point it is worthy of remark that the parliamentary decree had reference to temporal affairs, and did not, in any way, interfere with the religious faith of the Church, which the French Christians continued to maintain according to their traditions and teachings. The decree of Clement XII, therefore, was the assertion upon his part of the pontifical right to dictate the temporal policy of France. He explicitly asserted this by affixing his papal curse upon all who obeyed the decree of the Parliament, and by declaring it to be null, inefficacious, invalid, and entirely destitute of all lawful effect, and by releasing all who had sworn to observe it from the obligation of their oaths. In the face of this pontifical mandate, however, the decree of Parliament was executed, and 4,000 Jesuits were driven out of Paris. Clement XII was incensed at this and issued a formal bull in praise of the Jesuits and in denunciation of their opposers. The Parliament suppressed this bull, and refused to permit it to be printed in France. The Parliament of Aix went even further, by having it torn out by the executioner and publicly burned, and by inviting Louis XV to avenge himself on the court of Rome and the Pope. Five the King of France, however, was weak enough to suffer himself to be prevailed upon to allow a synod of the clergy to be convened under pretense of putting an end to the disputes between the civil and religious powers, as if such a thing were then possible without submission to Jesuit dictation, backed as a society was by an irritable and impracticable pope, who had vainly supposed himself powerful enough to check the tide of indignation then beating upon the Jesuits. Impressed by the opinions and policy of Clement XII, this synod adopted a course favorable to the Jesuits by endeavoring to change the issue, so as to conceal the real question with the view of making it appear that the Church itself, and even Christianity, was in danger, they fulminated anathemas against the works of the French philosophers of Bale, of Helvetius, of Rousseau, of Voltaire, and of the Encyclopedists thereby furnishing arguments which have ever since done Jesuit service by misleading the unwary into the belief that Christianity and Jesuitism are of synonymous meaning, and that the destruction of the latter would be the death of the former. They, moreover, tried to favor the Jesuits by declaring that the Church alone had the right to teach and instruct children, that it alone could judge in matters of doctrine, and fix the degree of submission which was due to them, and that the civil authority could in no way go against the canon law. Sixth, this assumption of ecclesiastical authority was intended to strengthen the papacy, and was accepted by the Jesuits as favorable to them, because the Pope at that time was their friend. But the Parliament of Paris could not fail to see that, if recognized, it would place the papacy above the state, and France at the mercy of the Jesuits, at least during the pontificate of Clement XIII. It therefore declared it to be derogatory to the authority of the government, and prohibited the people from obeying it. In consequence of this parliamentary opposition, the prelates who had shaped the course of the Senate were driven to the necessity of seeking the aid of Louis XV so as to avenge themselves upon the enemies of the Jesuits by means of royal power. The king, 
who was then reeking from his debaucheries for which he found shelter in the acquiescence of the Jesuits succeeded in obtaining an edict which annulled the decree of Parliament. Encouraged by the success, the Jesuits demanded their restoration to authority, supposing that, with the king and the pope both upon their side, they would then be able to triumph over all opposition. But the parliamentary antagonists were not overcome so easily, and rallied sufficiently to obtain another decree against them, not less condemnatory than that which had been temporarily suspended. Meanwhile, hostility to the Jesuits was rapidly increasing throughout Europe, which incensed them the more, inasmuch as they would not abate their extreme demands, and could compromise nothing without an acknowledgement of their wrong which they were never known to make. Spain then followed the example of Portugal, and the king, Charles III, expelled them from his dominions. Thus, at the time referred to, they were expelled from the territories of the three great Roman Catholic states Portugal, Spain, and France. History of the Popes of Rome By Corminian Vol. I.I. Pages 393 History of the Popes of Rome By Corminian Vol. I.I. Pages 393 26 id p. 394. History of the Popes of Rome. By Corminian. Vol. 2, pages 394. The King of the Two Sicilies, and Ferdinand, Duke of Parma and Placentia, also expelled them from their dominions. By common consent among these powers, the Jesuits were sent to Italy, where the Pope, in return for their devotion to him, was expected to provide for their wants and to see that proper protection was afforded them. Clement XII had resisted all these strong powers in order to defend them, and this measure was adopted in preference to an open breach with the Pope, so that he might be made to realize the extent of the indignation against them. In the strong language of Cormen a Roman Catholic, but intensely hostile to the Jesuits the soil of Italy was polluted by this unclean slime which the nations had rejected, and which they had sent back to Rome, the fountain of all corruption. 7. Clement XII became enigma when he found himself unable to counteract the general prejudice existing against the Jesuits, and, with strange infatuation, allowed his passions to obtain complete mastery over him. He fulminated anathemas against the kings of Portugal, Spain, France, the two Sicilies, and the Duke of Parma and Placentia, and threatened them with excommunication if they did not cease their opposition to the Jesuits. He even went so far as to send papal troops against the Duke of Parma to bring him to obedience by military coercion. But the other powers were not alarmed by the sound of the pontifical thunder, and the kings of France, Spain, Portugal, and Naples promptly pronounced against the Pope and prepared to punish him for marching an army against the Duke of Parma, whose policy towards the Jesuits' WT is the same as their own. Even Louis XV was induced by Choiseul, his minister, to unite upon this point with the other kings. Thereupon, the king of the two Sicilies invaded the papal province of Beneventum with an army, intending thereby to teach the Pope that he was transcending his legitimate powers as head of a church. History of the Popes of Rome By Corminian Vol. I.I. Pages 394. The bull of the Pope was torn up at the courts of Portugal, Spain, and Parma, and by the Parliament of Paris. The excitement became general, and Clement XII was awakened from his apparent sense of security by the mutterings of the storm gathering upon all sides of him. 
he was brought to realize, possibly for the first time, that even he, with all the powers of the church in his hands, was unable to drive back the waves then dashing against the papacy and threatening to engulf it. In this emergency he sought aid from Maria Theresa, the Empress of Austria, with the hope that, with the assistance of so strong a power, he could make successful resistance to those combined against the Jesuits. But the Empress, having cause to complain of the treachery of the Jesuits to her, declined to comply with this request, and went a step farther by annulling one of the important people goals which had been published in her dominions. The clouds, already lowering over the head of Clement XII, then thickened more rapidly than ever, and the struggling Pope, finding himself everywhere deserted by the strong powers all of which had hitherto been united in favor of the Church became so humbled in his pride as to declare that he was ready to make concessions. That is, to do something anything to arrest the declining fortunes of the papacy. Thus humiliated, he implored the clemency of the sovereigns begging them, as we may suppose, to relax their grasp upon him on account of their veneration for the Church. But it was too late. The impracticable demands of the Jesuits had brought on such an issue between the spiritual and the temporal powers as to leave no ground for concessions on the part of the sovereigns, so long as they were persisted in. They were bound to maintain their own temporal powers within their dominions, or else allow the Jesuits to rule over them according to their pleasure. To this they could not submit without absolute degradation. Howsoever strange it may now appear that the Pope did not see this sooner, it should be regarded as creditable to him that, when he did see it, he bowed his head humbly before the pelting storm, and yielded to a necessity he could not avoid. To credit should not be withheld from the man who does right, even at the last extremity, especially when, as in this case, after Clement XII decided to change his course, he went to the extent of promising the sovereigns that he would pronounce the abolition of the society in a public consistory, and leave the Jesuits to suffer the consequences of their own folly. Having made up his mind to this, a day was appointed for the performance of the solemn act of signing the death warrant of the Jesuits. But this postponement led to a result which had not been dreamed of one that furnished new evidence of the capacity of the Jesuits for intrigue. During the night preceding the day appointed for the public ceremony of announcing the abolition of the Jesuits, Clement XII was suddenly seized with convulsions, and died leaving the act unperformed, and the Jesuits victorious.